Hello and welcome to the Palladium Podcast, episode 8. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee, um, and I'm joined this week by our friend Will Eden, who works at uh, works in biotech investing. So we're going to talk about some of the stuff in health, in biotech, and what we can learn about those spaces and how they affect how we should view the world and how we should view society. Um, so Will, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here. I'm super excited. Great, great. Okay, we're going to have a lot of fun getting into some of these topics. Um, so first of all, you work at Teal Capital doing life sciences investing, biotech investing. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, generally, we're going early stage, so we're usually talking seed to series B as a first placement. Um, so these companies are usually very, very early. Um, most of them are, uh, are preclinical at the time we invest. Sometimes, you know, we get like a phase one asset or something like that. Um, it's largely therapeutics, but we do, uh, do basically anything in the kind of broad life sciences. So that includes med devices, tools and services, diagnostics. So it's a pretty broad mandate within health. You said therapeutics. What does that word mean in this context? Yeah, usually drugs, but the thing is, it's actually becoming a much larger class, which is something we can uh, get into. But there have been a lot of new therapeutic modalities that have literally gotten approved within just a couple of years. Cell therapies, RNA, all kinds of like new crazy stuff. Right. So it used to be sort of like small molecules or large biologics like proteins or something like that. Right. And now it's antibodies, RNA, cell therapy. There's like digital stuff getting approved now. I mean, it's, um, it has expanded quite a lot. Yeah. Okay. So the first question that I want to ask is, is healthcare even real? I know that sounds like a crazy (laughs) question, but until like the 20th century, basically Plato's opinion seems to be pretty good, which is if you need anything more than, uh, you know, if you, if you need to do anything more than, than like basically a, a basic diet of, of roasts and, you know, Bronze Age stuff, whatever it was they were eating back then, and uh, and and some exercise. If you need more than that, if you need special diets, if you need special treatments, well, I mean, basically give up hope. Um, and, right. And like we know that the health system or like healthcare and and doctors and so on have been. There's been a lot of crazy stuff in that field, um, even up into the 20th century, and and yeah. so. What I want to know is like, let's take this back to, to reality, like from a skeptical position with what stuff is actually real, how much of it is just dysfunction or weirdness. So I totally concur. Uh, Plato was right for literally thousands of years, right? (laughs) Right? Which, um, you know, he may still be right, but, uh, I think, I think on this particular topic, I think we finally started to make some progress, right? Okay. I think that folks would say germ theory was the start of having real, actual, helpful medicine. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, and folks still point to that as like one of those clearest examples of, this is a thing with a large effect size, right? Right. Because that, that enables... Um, stuff like antibiotics, vaccines, even surgery, because yeah, the big problem in surgery was the big problem in surgery was infection, right? Yes, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, first we learned you should like clean your instruments between doing surgery on yeah, two different people and, and wash your hands and so things that seem totally obvious now, but were not obvious in even the nineteenth no, century. No, no, definitely not obvious, right? Until we like built a microscope and like zoomed in on it. This yeah. this was all just some crazy theory, you know. They 
thought like they were like plagues from God or like spontaneous generation or like all, all these crazy yeah. things, right? Yeah, well, I, I mean, there was sort of in the early days of biological science of, of its latest iteration, I guess, the germ theory variant, uh, we had like, like Pasteur uh, had the, the theory. Right. Right. And I think it was a long time before that was like a well accepted theory. Like I mean, well accepted. Happens. I mean, I think, I think, I think within decades, yeah, folks had made progress on it. Right. I mean, you could, you could observe them under a microscope. At the point where you, you could, could observe them, then, penicillin, then, right. Then that's pretty, uh, pretty conclusive. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can look and you can find all sorts of like things under a microscope, but like which of those things is making us sick versus not is actually still not that trivial. Right. Yeah. Like, like you look in the body and there's actually an enormous ecosystem of all kinds of different little critters that exactly. do all kinds of things and who knows whether they're useful or, or bad or what. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like if someone had like done that microscopic analysis on like the gut lining they would have seen like these massive colonies of stuff right i mean yeah. what like yeah, what yeah. Is this? yeah it actually would have been a really weird discovery if they'd figured that out like a hundred years ago that we have this like massive microbiome like what would they have done to our <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> to our gut with a know, lot of 19th century technology yeah i mean a lot of <laughs> a lot of medicine in the sort of early 20th century had this very um brutal approach to it yeah it, like like, you know, you really, um, like some of the things that, that come to mind are like childbirth, right? Yeah. Like they went from, uh, doing it a more, more like natural traditional way to like right. really taking the woman into the hospital, like strapping her down, using all these tools. And it's like, yeah, it's it got a kind very of medicalized experience. Yeah. And then you see sort of in, in obviously mental health, they do stuff like lobotomies and electroshock <laughs> therapy and like, and all that stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. not like, oh yeah, there was like. There was, there was, um, that had been going on forever. It was like, there was this particular era of medicine. Yeah. Um, I would say that it was basically the influence of modernism, right? Right. Um, Folks, folks were like, yeah, we can solve this. We've, 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 we've figured out things. Right. And you just, you, you just treat the system as this reductible, uh, very, very, uh, rationally understandable system. And you just like chop it into its parts, fix the part that's broken, replace it. It's like, you know, repairing a backhoe or something, right? Like you, <laughs> you go in, you figure out what's wrong. It's like, all right, there's no oil pressure here. That means the pump's broken or this valve right. is broken. You just replace the thing and, and, and that's it. Um, so and I that think works some of that what's kind of confusing though, is that like individual parts of the system can work that way. Right. Right. So, so it's sort of this, this, this interesting thing. It's like a complex system with a many of these like organic feedback processes. That's right. Um, uh, that, that like, in many cases, you want to work with those things instead of rooting yeah. around them. But in some cases, you can actually do these interventions, like surgery. Surgery yeah. is like the big one that that's uh, that's interesting. It's like been one of the big wins of yes the the health sciences. Yes, um, surgery that is sterile and yes. under anesthesia. <laughs> yes, <laughs> even it even, was not a big win for a long time. <laughs> right. Well, even even stuff like like with general anesthesia, I've heard stories that. Um, like the nervous system still working 
and still processing the pain, but it's just like it depends shuts down on the anesthetic, right? Yeah, okay. um, right? Some of them are are actually suppressing neural activity. Some of them are just like making you no longer conscious of the experience. Yeah, and so like depending on your theories of consciousness, which is way beyond the subject of this, some part of you yeah. might still be experiencing extreme pain, depending on which yeah. anesthetic you're using. Yeah, and like right, so there's like whether or not you find that like morally important, whether you're experiencing pain, but it might also be psychologically important. Like people can have, yeah, it does make me wonder, right? Like, if you don't have a uh, a conscious memory of like someone cutting into your body, but some but your body still has these reflexive responses to something, something felt it, right? You you encoded something in that part of your neural network, yeah. I I, honest god, I have no idea what, yeah, what that does, anyways. We won't speculate (laughs) too much, but like, so the the real stuff from what I can tell, so there's definitely surgery, antibiotics worked for at least a while, we'll see if they continue to work. The vaccines uh, definitely do seem to work. Yeah. Um, and then, so like, what, what else is there that's that's happening? I know we can do a lot of cool tricks, like CRISPR, right? right? Like we can rewrite DNA in <laughs> some like circumstances. But like truly decisive wins, right? Right. Um, I would point to organ transplant too. Okay, you know, great. Which, yeah. which again, is like 50-something years old now. Um, but yeah, I mean... Uh, medical imaging maybe uh, i mean yeah that that falls more into cool tricks i would say recently well i mean me- no, there medical, have been some real advances just over the last like decade or so which okay. i can get into to say a bit on the historical side though sure um yeah some of it is when you're trying to deal with a complex disease um it's going to be very difficult to do that with any single lever, right? Right. Um, and that's like with cancer or like an autoimmune right. disorder or whatever, all these yeah. chronic diseases that, are, that yeah. are really hard to deal with. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, but like, I think some of why people were confused and why the approach seemed to work for a while, like you mentioned giving someone a like frontal lobe lobotomy, like that had a massive effect size. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> right? Like you can remove a specific part of someone's brain and it impairs a specific function and nothing else. Yeah. Right? I mean, that, that does imply that the system is like separable, it's compartmentalized, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, things are definitely... Um... Yeah, like spatially organized. It's like, you know, if you nuked LA, there would be a particular <laughs> set of things that were lost. But true, true. on the other hand, um, well, that's not always the best way to solve problems, but that's a whole other question. Um, but um, like, there's there, the, the thing that you have to be conscious of is all these feedback processes. Like uh, we were talking earlier, you mentioned in cancer. Uh, there's like the, a million pathways there right yeah, one of the big things that's being face. that's like sort of one of the new paradigms is you have to get the immune system involved right. to get the immune system to to fight the cancer because that's actually what the immune so you can get a complex there. coordination right to solve yeah. a complex problem my point is like i think folks were confused for good reason yeah certainly early on right and the way that i like to classify it is um we've gotten very good at dealing with problems that are hyper acute and urgent right Right, so like if you get shot like your odds of dying is just much lower today it's just much 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 lower for tons of reasons if you can make it to the hospital we (laughs) can true (laughs) um but yeah i mean like we have paramedics now we didn't used to Right. right that's like one of one of the things that has actually saved lives so like if you fall and you hurt yourself like all of those kinds of things are much easier um so, like, trauma care, absolutely. That's helped right. enormously. Um, 
In terms of stuff like lobotomies, I mean, yeah, like fascinating uh, case studies, but then ultimately where those actually sort of helpful for disease, you know, like early epilepsy, like you could sort of cut the uh, two lobes of your brain, like sometimes that helped. Um, wow. yeah. So I will say the one, the one redeeming feature of that period of medicine, um, which was really horrible, right? But like... Yeah. The one thing I'll say for it is they were looking for large effect sizes. Right. And um, I think the paradigm today is actually much more about can we find drugs that are first safe and then check if they're effective. And right. I think this is what has actually caused some of the problems in the system today. Right. And you, so, you mean like, in terms of like a lot of activity happening, but but but, but very little of it pans out. Yeah. Very very little of it. Right. Pans because out. it's a much less sort of cowboy approach. You're not just going in with a knife and fooling around. You're you're making sure that it's safe first. And, and when you're dealing That's with right. a complex self-regulatory system, it's very difficult to make some random large effect size change that's actually also safe. Yeah, because you're just changing so many different variables, right? right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, they even took this approach with, like, cancer, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, some, 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 some actual cancers are just solved by, like, cutting them out, and then you're fine. Yeah, right? well, it's surgery so, for cancer makes a lot of sense. and then But then there's also stuff like chemo and radiation that right. that um, seems like a crazy approach, but does it actually work? I, I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, one thing you can think about is, um, are you successfully attacking the hallmarks of cancer, right? Because, like, for a cell to become cancerous, many things have to go wrong. Yeah. And the question is, can you get a large effect size by going after things that cancer depends on, right? And what chemo is doing is saying, what 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 defines cancer? And the answer is, well, it grows faster Un than your body. Unregulated growth. Yeah. Exactly. So can you specifically attack unregulated growth? Right. And the answer is yes to some level of specificity. Yeah, except and, that also uh, gets your hair and etc. Right, hair and skin and gut. Yeah, it's it it is a very unpleasant experience, and in most cases, it isn't curative. Right, um, it's curative in in some fraction of cases and in some tumor types. Right, but the early history of chemo, I think, actually, um, it's fascinating because because that was right around the time that medicine started to transition away from like the cowboy approach into yeah. like we need this well regulated, well defined system. So, um, chemo started because people observed, uh, folks who got gassed, uh, with mustard gas had lower incidence of certain tumors. Interesting. Yep. And so, uh, basically the first real chemo research was emerging during the like second world war in these like army hospitals, basically. Right. And, uh, that process basically continued after the war, but not for very long, right? There was a window of extreme experimentation. Um, and like, I think some of that is basically because if you had surgery and your cancer came back, like you basically had no chance and something that has defined medicine, even, even to this day, um, to a degree, I think people don't appreciate is if you have literally no other options and you're going to die system is pretty good about letting you try stuff. It's not perfect, but it's better than people think. Yeah. Um, and it's getting better. And so basically with early chemo, you had a situation where folks thought there was no, no hope, right? And so right. you could do what you wanted. And the kind of early practitioners of chemo, they were definitely people who were like on the margins of right. uh, society. These, these, these were not your like high prestige doctors at Harvard. These were people yeah, yeah. who like barely made it through med school, right? <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> 
And um, it was a highly empirical approach, which is also something that's very different today, which is like we figure all this stuff up out up front, right? Yeah. And we, like, perfect the drug before we even try to test it in people. Uh, Back then, it was like, we're just going to try this. And then they started trying combinations, right? Right. And, like, the first chemo regimens that actually worked were, like, three or four drug combos. Huh. And, like, trying to test that today, it's like, that would be extremely difficult. Yeah. Extremely difficult. Right. So, like, could we have gotten chemo through today and would, like, each individual chemo agent show an effect such that people took it through a trial? Like, I think that would actually be a, a very hard thing to get through today. Yeah, because, yeah, there's the individual chemicals have to be safe and effective, and then also you have to and then the, the, combination the interactions of them. between them, make sure they're not negative interactions. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that could be a very complex thing. It's a combinatorial explosion, basically. And so in the system today, if you want to do a drug combo, you, you, you basically have to do each, each drug separately and then combine them. Which, oh, which is very, very hard to do, right? Very, very Well, costly. especially like with something like chemo, the individual drugs are also likely to be pretty bad for yeah, you. Yeah, they're, they're highly toxic. Right. Yes, so in, it's in like most, most not cases. safe. right um so like you can definitely get away with drugs that are not not super safe in cancer today Mm -hmm. um and i would highlight the history of uh car t cells actually as 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 a really good surprising example where we allowed things to continue even when patients were dying Mm -hmm. right and can you explain how that works with that yeah totally so uh what happens with uh car t cells is you pull t cells out of a cancer patient and you yeah. basically genetically modify them to only go after one target and to go after that target and never stop. And you then reinfuse those T cells back into the patient in very large quantities. Yeah. And what we found is that for blood tumors in particular, which is about 10% of cancers, um, it works surprisingly well. Like right. actually these T cells mostly just cure these cancers. And, you know, they can recur. But generally when, when there's a lot of these T cells still floating around and if they persist in the body, generally, most of the time, the cancer doesn't come back. Right. So this is like really, truly curative therapy. Well, the problem is like a lot of those early patients trying it died. Yeah. And then some of them were cured. And the FDA did put a hold on these trials at first. You know, they're like, well, we have to like figure out what happened. And I actually incorrectly predicted that that was the end of of cell therapies like i I, oh, I i thought we were done for like a generation right right because we saw that happen with uh gene therapies but to my surprise like the fda lifted the hold and we proceeded ahead and folks found actually drugs that like cured the problems that were killing these patients and now like car t cells don't kill people like uh-huh. you you should be near a hospital and they should know the like protocol to save your life if you start to have these things happen but like we can basically save those patients' lives from the side effects because right. we were able to continue to press ahead and like actually figure it out. Yeah, so okay, that, that opens up a um, couple lines of questioning here. So first of all, what's going on now that's yep. the exciting stuff? And then let's delve at some point a little bit more into some of these regulatory effects because it sounds like the system yep. is like very much defined by what you're allowed to do and like the, the general... Uh, shape of of the investigations and so on. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, those those are both two large topics. Um, so to talk first about what's exciting today, um, just within the last few years, entirely new therapeutic modalities have gotten approval in the U.S. So gene therapies, 
cell therapies, nucleic acid therapies. Okay, what's that? that Oncolytic viruses. Okay, great. Just to name several in the last few years. Okay, great. Yeah, (laughs) right. Um, I'd love to know how all that stuff works, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, and, and sort of how how sort of safe and effective all of those are, right? Um, so cell therapies, uh, CAR T is kind of the most obvious example, um, yeah. which I just mentioned, but there are people trying it for other cell types, um, and how how sort of large an effect that will have is an interesting question, and it varies by field. What I will say for cell therapies, though, it gets to your point, which is you need a complex intervention for a complex problem, right? Yeah. And when you're actually putting a cell in the body, like, what is a cell, right? It's basically a, like, biological factory. Right. It's a right? living thing. It's It's got ways of interacting with the rest of the body. That's very, exactly Very right. complex. That's exactly it's right. It's not just some drug. It's, it's yep. you're releasing something into the environment here. And so um, I think this is also why, like, the kind of early stem cell clinics... Uh, you know, seem, seem sort of so promising, which also got cracked down on. Okay. Um, but for a while, it basically was the Wild West. As long as you were taking the, the patient's own cells and putting the, the, like their own cells back in, the FDA was basically pretty lax on this. It was considered a medical procedure rather than a drug, right? Right. So, like, um, it's funny how much doctors get leeway, yeah. but researchers and drug companies don't. Interesting. Um, so with doctors, if they want to test a new, um, you know, surgical procedure, they basically can, you know, there's, there's, there's sort of no equivalent of the like FDA per se, which is, well, you have to test the following 17 things before you do it. Right. Like, like as a surgeon, you can go in there and you can choose to do something differently. Right. Right. And similarly, it's like that with drug prescriptions too. You can use things off label. Right. It's much harder to, to sort of give give patients drugs before they get approved, though there are yeah. pathways for that, which have gotten better. Um, but as soon as something's approved, you can start using it off-label for anything you want. Right? There's a huge amount of leeway that those folks have. Yeah. Very, very different when you're talking about like early-stage drug development. Completely different world. Um, and so like stem cell clinics started off in the realm of like, oh, you're just a doctor doing a like medical procedure on a patient. And then, you know, folks started to complain, like, there were, as you might expect with the Wild West, there's always fraud, people are, like, radically overstating claims, you saw some great effect sizes, and there are plenty of anecdotes that these are, like, life-saving new therapies. Um, But then, you know, you also got people, like, reporting a wide variety of symptoms, and eventually the FDA said, all right, like, maybe these things are are, are actually drugs, and we need to seriously think about this. Yeah. (laughs) So, So that brings me to the question of how the FDA relates to this. And I guess, like, the big overarching question there is, is the FDA working? Is it, is it doing its thing, like the thing properly or is it like a sclerotic institution that's, that's decaying right. and just kind of causing trouble? Oh, I think the answer is both. Okay. Right. Um, I think it's a bit nuanced. I think the FDA is working as intended where the intended thing is safety. Yeah. Right? Um, if, if you think about it from the incentive structure of the FDA, people are much more averse to negative outcomes yeah. than they are excited about positive outcomes. Right. And so effectively what you have is a bunch of people who um, will get screamed at and drawn up before Congress and, you know, just widely hated if they left through something like thalidomide, which, by the way, went through in Europe but not past the FDA during right. a safety-only uh, paradigm. But anyway, that's a... <laughs> um, 
But, like, what, their what job is to thalidomide? stop thalidomide. Yeah, so um, it was a drug that was developed to um, treat morning sickness. Right. Uh, turns oh out it causes birth defects. Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah. This is, like, the one thing folks point to of, like, the FDA exists to stop thalidomide. Yeah. And uh, the FDA did exist before this point, right? This is not what caused it to start. Um, and, again, to the FDA's credit, it was not approved in the U.S. The birth yeah. defects were happening in Europe, where it did get approved. Yeah. But um, basically, up until that point, to get something past the FDA, you only had to prove safety. Which right. is really interesting, because that is a much lower bar to clear. After thalidomide, they said, well, we have to do something to stop things like thalidomide from happening. And so they moved to proving safety and efficacy. <laughs> Which seems like a very silly response what? to a drug yeah, that failed hold, on hold safety. On. Yeah, <laughs> failed on safety. What is, what's going on here? Well, because I think that's, that's part of the problem. People started freaking out. They're like, babies are coming out deformed. Something is horribly wrong with the system. We have to change it. Right, except that it was horribly wrong with someone else's system. <laughs> <laughs> but folks got really, really scared. Yeah, I bet. Right, and so what you have is is a situation where the FDA has to overreact to safety concerns, right? Yeah. And so they are very, very tight on that stuff. Um, there are still drugs that get through that turn out to have safety problems, but they're like, you know, one in a million patients have some really rare, horrible side effect, which right. you just can't see in a trial. Like, like you yeah, can't, yeah. no one, no one does a trial of like a million patients. Like, it's just completely infeasible. Yeah. And so to some degree, we kind of rely on this drug getting rolled out anyway to tell if, yeah. if there's something truly rare. Like yeah. the, the sort of only thing that those early safety studies are catching is like, is it toxic to almost all humans? Right. Which is a good test to run. <laughs> right, right. So, like, I think that would be a much lower bar to clear, right? Yeah. Um, but then, uh, but yeah, so... Um, but, but like, you seem to be saying also that the FDA is not just wrapped up in that safety incentive and totally... Their mandate has grown. they're also doing... They're also allowing new things and, like, coming out and saying, actually, we're going to lift the ban on this thing and we're going to allow exper experimentation. So right. How, how does that process work? Like, how do they make those decisions? And yeah. So, um, the honest answer is it's a case-by-case -case basis. Of course. Yeah. Right? And, like, if CAR-Ts were killing people and not curing cancer, they would not have let that continue. Obviously. Yeah. Right? Like, um, and so they, they, they actually are on some level doing a sophisticated cost-benefit trade-off. Right. Um, you can obviously quibble with, like, are they sort of doing that calculation correctly, right? right. Are they I too risk-averse? Are they allowing too much right. weird stuff? Or and so, like, for cancer, I think they're on the right side of that trade-off. Okay. It, it's a very serious disease, and you can do serious things to treat it because there's no options. Right. In rare diseases, that's actually its own fascinating thing. So a bunch of laws were passed that things are called orphan diseases, which is fewer than, you know, like, tens of thousands of patients. Yeah. Um, actually have a much lower bar to clear. Uh -huh. And sometimes these are so rare, the total patient population isn't large enough for a, like, statistically meaningful Right. So, uh, yeah, so you just uh, have to do trial. what you can. And so, right, and so you have these situations where, you know, a drug might have, you know, 12 patients in an incredibly rare disease, and basically that was your safety and efficacy, and they might just have to approve it based on that data just because you can't get that many more patients, right? Right. Um, which has led to a number of um, big fights and pushback. 
So what's really been interesting is the role that patient advocacy groups have played. And right. pharma's actually done a really, really good job at leveraging basically the families of folks who are sick, where they legitimately don't have any other option. Right? Yeah. And what happens in these cases is you have the patients, right? You, 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 you have like sick citizens, right? Yeah. That are effectively coming to their government and saying like, we need an answer. We need a solution. Here. Right. And this is where, you know, you're saying people are very averse to the negative consequence of like a safety problem, but this is where you're having something from the other side, which is like, now you have these people saying, Hey, I've got this thing that's not being cured. We need something. Yeah. And what ends up happening there is like FDA lowers the bar and then that means a bunch of like really marginal drugs get through. Right. Right. And like, I, I personally would like rather err on the side of like, go for it and try it. Right. Um, but the sort of FDA is known for having this very strict sort of stamp of approval. Mm-hmm. But then like when, you know, more than half of the new drugs coming out are these like rare disease drugs with like very low bars for evidence, it does sort of call into question where they are on that trade off. Right. Right. So cancer, I think, is well calibrated. Rare disease, they're letting through a bunch of pretty sketchy drugs. Um, right. But but then some work in, incredibly well. Right. Right. But some are being pushed through because, like, the consumer's calling for it and sort of convincing the government to have pretty loose standards. Yeah. And then the sort of flip side is if it's something for, like, you know, a chronic disease that affects a huge portion of the population, like heart disease. Right. Right. That's, like, a notable example where it's extremely hard to get any new drugs through. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense because, like, if you roll out something that actually has a bunch of weird side effects, you're rolling it out to a lot of people. Yeah. Like, millions and millions of people. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It's true, but then there's a question of do we get those radical innovations in heart disease? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, and this this comes back to like the the structure of these experimentations. Like, do you want to roll it out to millions of people at once, or do you want right. to have a more graduated testing schedule where it's like, okay, we've done our sort of trials, and now we know it's generally safe, so we'll prescribe it to a small population, right? It's like larger than a test population, right. but like not so much that if it starts killing people. Or causing weird things, it's like now you've really screwed a lot of people. Like I've heard, I've heard yeah. stories. I don't even know how how real any of this stuff is, but like you hear stories with like statins causing all kinds of issues. Right, right. Like they they're very effective at dealing with the heart disease issue, but like by kind of causing trouble trouble for a bunch of other <laughs> parts of the body. I mean, you are sort of messing with a fundamental metabolic pathway. Right. Right. I mean, so yeah. it, it is like the one thing that, that's got to keep going and is at the center of everything. Yeah. Yep. Literally the heart. Yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, but I mean, if you also sort of do the like utilitarian calculus, right? Like you can, you know, marginally help a few hundred patients with a rare disease, or you could help people People, you know, millions and millions and millions of folks with heart disease. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, I mean, the risk is greater, but so is the reward, right? Yeah. If you could cure heart disease, that's like the single biggest impact you could make on health in like the Western world. Right. Okay. So that brings me to one of the questions that I wanted to ask, which is the cholesterol question. Like sure. what is going on there? Uh, for a long time, they were saying cholesterol is bad, but I've been hearing recently things that like, maybe it's not bad. Maybe it's like... <laughs> part of the body cleaning up the problem right it's like that's why you get the cholesterol elevated uh when yeah. you're sick because um, like cholesterol is a, a fundamental component of, of what cells are built yeah of. that's right right 
so you know, I really like butter. I really like eggs. I eat a lot of this stuff. Like, <laughs> right? It's it, what's what's the deal there? Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Um, so I will say, I think that like for all of the complaints about how you know the healthcare system is trying to address a complex system, like yeah. nutrition is that, but but like even worse and yeah, harder. Of course, right. right? Where like every change to nutrition is being rolled out to hundreds of millions or billions of people <laughs> on, on, on what looks like very little evidence. Like like recently yeah. there was this thing. Um, like some report by some think tank or something like it, this big plan to get the world to like stop eating meat or something. Yeah. And it was getting rolled out like crazy fast. Like the UN was picking it up and stuff. And it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. And like, like this, if this we is had... like a very untested, <laughs> crazy idea. Right. And like if we have the same standards for food that we do for drugs, right? Like, right. you know, hold the, like hold the, hold the presses, right? Like don't like, start telling people to make these massive dietary changes. Yeah. Like, wait, um, yeah, uh, there's a long and sort of complicated history about various researchers. They ran certain tests. They extrapolated from certain bases of evidence that are sort of questionable or short-term. Yeah. Um, we could have a whole podcast just on this. Oh, right? yeah, I'm sure. Um, we could and have I, a I, another, whole podcast series on it. Yeah, no, I, um, another big dimension on the food stuff is, is like, food seems to be more politicized than medicine hmm. in an interesting well, way. Like, not, not necessarily like... They're both pretty political. Okay, sure. Yeah. I yeah, I mean I maybe I don't pay attention to the medicine very much, but like I don't I don't mean so much that like you have division uh, you know, left and right or whatever, but you do get when you look into the history of some of these sort yeah. of changes, these public health changes, especially in diet, you yeah, find these right. weird cults that are involved <laughs> in, in like pushing this stuff up. Like it's the seventh day Adventists, right? They have these crazy right, ideas right, right. about like we need to make people less virile so they won't sin as much. So we're going to get people to stop eating meat, you know, get them to eat Kellogg's cornflakes and the, stuff. Yep, it's like, this is the, actually like true. The motivation this is actually this true. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's totally nuts. It's totally, totally nuts. And then the idea that these like small groups have this like outsized influence on like public policy is right. just, it, it, just incredibly crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, Food and medicine are both politicized, but in very different ways. Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, we can do a whole, a whole thing just on food. Um, I think that food recommendations have become more politicized as people's faith in the government has fallen. Yeah. Right? Okay. Like when they first rolled out sort of dietary guidelines, there was like pushback from the scientific community, mostly along the lines of like, Hey, we're still trying to figure this out. Like, Maybe you shouldn't put this out there yet. Right. Whereas now there's almost a like partisan divide, right? Like right. if someone eats a paleo diet, it's like they're probably somewhat libertarian. Like if right. someone is a vegan, they're like probably voting democratic. And like right. the fact that these like food markers can sort of lay out. Right? Yeah. Like, well, I mean that's like, always been what like, it like, is. They're, right? they're linked like, to someone's belief system. Right. But I mean, <laughs> like you look at you know uh, Judaism, for example, all kinds of prohibitions on pork, etc. Like, and that was partially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. those kind of things grow out of those kind of like group differentiation things when you get these complex group So politics. food has been a cultural marker, yeah. right? But like, I don't think that was something that was really dividing America, at least to my knowledge, until somewhat modern history. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the 19th century looks like. It's a big sort of <laughs> black hole on some of this cultural <laughs> stuff, but I, I'm sure they had all kinds of crazy stuff going on, but I guess we don't see it as much. But Right, right, um, right. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking, like, more deep history, like, you see a lot of fights over, like, what you're supposed to be eating, right? And, and yeah, true. Where true, you get true. groups kind of butting heads within a single polity or within a single area. Like, true. How they distinguish themselves is how they eat and so on. 
Yeah, no, I totally concur that it's a significant cultural marker for yeah. sure, right? And that's kind of manifested in these in these different ways over time. Yeah, but but those cultural markers come out of political conflicts, I guess is my point. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, to to sort of bring it back to the cholesterol question, though, um, yeah. I'll sort of go through my best summary of like what I think we know. Great. I um, love that. First of all, eating cholesterol, unless you have some sort of weird metabolic problem, like that doesn't change your like blood cholesterol levels. Okay. There's there's like a very small number of cases where where it might, but they're a minority. You shouldn't worry about eating cholesterol. So I can guzzle my eggs in butter, no problem. Um, eggs eggs are fine. Butter only has a little cholesterol. Um, okay. Eggs eggs have like a lot, right? Um, but as far as I can tell, it's totally fine. Like you should just eat egg yolks. That's totally fine. Um, the question of, of, of the sort of causality of LDL cholesterol in atherosclerosis, I think there's enough evidence we can pretty con conclusively say that it's part of the causal chain. Right, it's in there somewhere. Now, saying that it's like the bad guy <laughs> in the story is, is, is possibly misleading because there's this question of what leads to higher cholesterol. Right levels, right? And then there's, you know, all sorts of subtypes of like, there's large LDL, there's small LDL, there's oxidized LDL. Folks are trying to sort of get get at the sort of causality there insofar as they can. It's very hard to establish that in a human body. And most right. of these animal models just quite frankly aren't that reflective of what's happening in our bodies. That's, that's really interesting to me. It's like, you'd think sort of all mammals work on a similar pattern, but I guess like a lot of the mouse results don't necessarily apply. Yeah. Um, certain things are pretty fundamental, right? So if you're doing like mitochondrial research and, right. and, and you're using like rat mitochondria, like it's, it's pretty similar, yeah, right? Yeah, it's right. pretty similar. But like, what is the rate limiting step on like human longevity versus mouse longevity, right? Like, oh, right. Like it could be the same fundamental architecture, but different rate limiting steps. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That's point. right. You know, and something using like rabbits as a model for like cholesterol accumulation when their diet contains zero cholesterol, right? right. It's like that that's actually just <laughs> yeah, that's a bad model. Let's start feeding rabbits red meat and <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> yeah, it's like well, <laughs> it's like right, their bodies aren't aren't designed to process that. Right? Like, similarly, you can feed humans grass to see what happens, and the answer I, is nothing happens. I, I imagine the person doesn't do very well. Yeah, they, they don't last that long. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like a month or two, you know, and then... <laughs> then they discover they actually don't have four stomachs. It's oh, highly man. specialized to eat grass. It's a shame that we ran that experiment, you know, 200 years ago where we only fed people grass. No, like, no one thought that was a good idea. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, I would say watching out for the use and the misuse of models is, is, is very important. And this is yeah, one of, of the course. big things that makes medicine super hard, particularly cancer. Like, the failure rates are so spectacularly high. And it's because, like, we're talking about different tissue types, different pathways. Like, you can, like, take human tumors and put them into mice, but only if the mice don't have a functioning immune system. You can put mouse tumors into mice, but you're, like, inserting it into, like, the side of their leg, which is not a place a tumor ever grows on a human, right? right? Like, there's just all these ways in which these models don't line up with the actual yeah, situation. Yeah. And, and some... this, this gets back to sort of just how we do science in general, like... Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and a lot of science is, is uh, like not necessarily very applicative or generalizable. I think it's been incredibly good for simple physical systems, right? The fact that, that yeah. we could put a man on the moon, I mean, holy crap. Yeah. Right? And that yeah, is, for that's engineering scientists awesome. are, are great. They seem yeah. To work. 
right? That that's awesome, right? Um, we can basically perfectly predict the outcome of like, is this bridge going to fall down when we drive a train over it, right? Right. Um, once we get to complex systems, it is it is my honest belief that we've just not figured out how to like deal with them well. Yeah. Um, and like a lot of the sort of scientific techniques, particularly like statistical techniques, like really don't hold up well when when we're talking about these really complex. Yeah, systems. this is something that I've noticed. Like, you know, people. I, you sort of hear this story of like physics envy, like, oh yeah, yeah. we want we want, we want oh, healthcare to be like physics, and and it's and you know the idea is, oh well, you know we did we did physics with these empirical models and so mm -hmm. on, so we just we'll do the same thing with, with healthcare. We'll use statistics. We'll just like yeah. gather a lot of data, blah blah blah. But like, first of all, the the approach doesn't make any sense. Second of all, that's not what they did in physics. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like in physics, yeah. it was like, let's find very, very simple systems that we can very highly predict. Right. And and then like start noticing patterns between those. It wasn't yeah. like, let's just, you know, put statistics everywhere and like, you know, sample size of 20 and like, here, you know, it's statistically significant. Yep. Let's go, right? Um, and yeah, the like flip side of that is like, even once you have a single cell, not even a human body, a single cell, you're already talking about this in incredibly complex yeah, system. Yeah. And when Massively you talk, complex. Right. And when you talk about how, <laughs> how statistics applies to a complex system, it's like statistics assumes a bunch of things about the distribution and about and how you're generating fixed, data, holding and, things fixed, et cetera. Yeah. Right. And, and like a complex system, like the assumptions of statistics like don't work that well that's, in complex that's exactly right i mean and, even just using a normal distribution like yeah right. it works for this very narrow class of problems where there's a large number of small additive factors like height or iq or something like that yeah like, it fits a bell curve because of the underlying generative physical process yeah the, the best approaches i've seen to complex systems analysis like when you're looking at so let's say society or history or something um, the case study kind of approach seems to yes. work well where you're really digging into like the details and like, not just sort of a big pile of generalizations, but what happened in this particular case. Yep. Right. Cause then like, it's much easier to pin down like, all right, this caused this, this caused that, that caused this. Right. And like find a bunch of plausible stories like that. And it is or you to think say, you can ultimately you still, still yeah, I mean, there, obviously there's a lot of uncertainty, but that's much easier problem than to make a general claim right. about here's all the factors in the system and here's all the pathways right. by which causality works. Like if you're looking at one pathway of causality because you're looking at one history, yeah. you can actually nail some things down uh, a lot of the time. But when you're looking at, when you're trying to sort of do a holistic kind of account for everything approach, which any kind of generalized, general claims, like uh, generalized theories yeah. sort of must necessarily do that. Uh, that that's a much stickier problem, very hard to do. And so that's why, like, well, this is like at Palladium, one of the things we're always trying to do is like, all right, let's dig into the particular Yeah, I mean, case what study. is avoid history but a series of case studies, right? Right, <laughs> and, and avoid these big abstractions like, oh, yeah, it's socialism, government regulation or whatever, and dig into like, all right, what, what happened in this case? What happened in this case? Right. Like, how does this work? Uh, sort of cutting away all those abstractions and really pinning things down. And I yeah. think that's how you... Uh, that's how you have to approach complex systems. And then like you can make some generalizations there or you say like, oh, hey, this system is like that other system that we studied. Maybe it's going to have a similar thing here. Right. But that's always only kind of a hunch unless, <laughs> you, unless you really... Um, right. And I mean, some work. things you can test more easily than others, right? Right. It is hard to experimentally test a theory of history. 
Yeah. At least with like nutrition and medicine, you could experimentally test something, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's sort of a notion of n, right? Whereas in history, there's there isn't really n. And n equals one, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> there's like one timeline, but then you can split that up into like subsections. Yeah. Well, there's, and like, yeah there's many different. Oh. Yeah. I mean, so like there are natural experiments that arise because it's largely of like government policy right you can like put a border somewhere right like i mean folks love to point to like north and south korea yeah like that's that's, i mean it tells you something 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 happened differently on these two sides of the border absolutely and then the question is like all right what What is the causal story that that happened that led to that point right is it is it that like all the competent people ended up in the south is it just the official story that like the north is doing socialism the south is doing whatever american style capitalism or is it like you know, there could actually, one of the things we found, like, digging into these things is a lot of the time it's got a lot more to do with, like, did you have competent institutions and what was yeah. their, like, political position in terms of how secure were they, how how many enemies do they have internal and external, do they have foreign backing, do they have, like, people helping them out with stuff versus screwing with them. Yeah. Like, these are huge factors that a lot of these sort of abstraction-based approaches are just going to totally miss. I totally concur, and that's why, you know, you can sort of look at something like nutrition science, right? And it's like, yeah. well, how, how can you possibly hold all these factors constant, right? right? And, like, you can try in a very simple statistical way to, like, control for something, right? But it's like, maybe how, how well your body responds to sugar depends on whether you're exercising, yeah, and, right. and like usually they're not testing the like interaction of exercise and sugar. They're just like, here's how much sugar you had, here's how much exercise you had. Let's put them in a like linear combination into this model. Right. Yeah, and, and the model, <laughs> like, the model is just like let's summarize the, the statistics. It's not like let's speculate about what's actually going on here. It's just let's yeah, draw a line in the data. Right? I mean, like folks try to get a causality, which is which is why they use model systems. The the problem is just does that model system become really. Like, there's a lot of things different about the model problematic <laughs> yeah exactly um so um yeah there was one startup that was basically looking like simultaneously like does this thing have an effect in worms flies fish small mammals right and like if, if it held up on all of those or like then it's probably gonna we can work. say something general right about how like cells work right 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 <laughs> Um, so like that's, that's one approach is like triangulating and not relying on one model too much. Yeah. I personally love the case study approach. Um, case studies do sometimes result in people testing the theory and then it doesn't always hold up as well when you sort of look outside this case study. Yeah, of course. Or it does work well some of the time and we can't predict when it's going to work. Right. Yeah. Which is one of the really big problems, right? It, it suggests there's some other factor in the model that we're not accounted for in the causal story yeah but it's not always obvious what it is yeah and the nice thing about case studies is it's kind of like the assumption of the case study is there's a bunch of factors here that are causal that you're not necessarily seeing yeah but we can learn some things here yeah um like by not accounting for the whole system or like all all counterfactual possibilities here you are inherently saying there are probably causal factors here that we're not looking at yeah but here's some things we can look at and like um, a uh, a nice example of this is um, again to sort of think more about the kind of history of cancer. So um, yeah. so something was tried in the early twentieth century called Foley's toxins. Okay. And literally, uh, this doctor made up a soup of like bacteria and just injected it into tumors. Oh wow. 
and he had a large number of case studies, and, and a shockingly high percentage of these case studies resulted in curing the tumor. Wow. There were also individual reports of someone getting, like, a really bad fever or something and, like, yeah, curing right. their cancer spontaneously, right? Um, what's tricky about those sorts of case studies is, like, you know, how many, you know, thousands and thousands of people had cancer and then how many sort of spontaneously healed themselves. So I think it's, like, a good place to start looking. And what's interesting is, like, Right, it doesn't you know, necessarily give you data on what's common. It gives you data on, like, here's something that happened. Right, and so it might be a good starting point, or it might be totally random. Yeah. And, like, you can also be totally wrong about what the intervention actually was, right? So, like, you know, yeah. he thought you can, like, inject this stuff with bacteria, and maybe the bacteria kills cancer cells. Well, what we found out is, like, it was mounting an immune response that was localized to the tumor. Yeah, well, that, that's what that's right. what occurred to me. Like, when you said, oh, you inject yep. bacteria into the cancer, well, that's like... So that's way more obvious today than it was then. Right, I guess, right, because we think a lot more about how the immune system is related to these things. It's like, oh, well, yeah, you create a localized infection, the body goes in and fights everything in the area. That's right. And tags everything in that area as enemy. Yep. And then goes and finds it in the other, elsewhere in the body. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, if you look at the successful cancer therapies today that are sort of new and hot and exciting, almost all of them are based on some sort of modulation like that, right? All, where all, all of them system, are, yeah. Where you're getting the immune system to tag yeah. it as an enemy. And so, like, clearly CAR-T is one example of that, you know, like, turned up to, like, 11, right? right. Um, but, like, uh, checkpoint therapies are also the other, like, big, hot new thing. And, like, these are going to be one of the best-selling uh, drug classes of all time. And basically what that does is that's taking off the brakes, right, of, 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 of cells that are already in your body who can see that tumor but can't quite sort of activate themselves enough to kill it. Yeah. So what are the side effects of... of you know, taking the brakes off the immune system. Like, presumably, you're going to feel sick more often. It's probably going to have more false positives, do weird things, yeah. more immune, immune um, disorder. The short stuff. answer is, you know, uh, checkpoints have only been widely used for a few years. And so, right. other than, like, short-term effects, we don't know what the true long-term effects are. And, like, okay. people are sort of actively studying this. Like, yeah. are, are they going to come up with a greater rate of autoimmune diseases? Like, the, the like yeah. I mean, that would, theoretically, it seems like we should, right? Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, totally. one, of the, one of the things that... Um, has puzzled me for some time. It's like when a woman gets pregnant, you know, she gets her morning sickness. She feels a little bit more sick for a while. But it seems, I don't know if this is actually true, but it seems like anecdotally women get a lot less sick during pregnancy. Like their immune system is working better. Or, like, is more a more heightened alert uh, or something. The flip side of that, though, is, like, are you feeling sick because of the infection? Or are you feeling sick because your body's fighting the infection? And a lot of the time you're feeling sick because your body's fighting the infection. Right. Generally, when women are pregnant, they're significantly more immune suppressed. Oh, really? Okay. And so if, if they get an infection, I think they're actually fighting it more quietly. Oh, interesting. Because <laughs> uh, to, to interfere less with the kid. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. But it's been one of those puzzles. It's like there's very clearly like an immune regulation thing yep. going on here. This also uh, ties back into cancer, right? Because there's yeah. some way that the fetus has figured out a way to not get the mom's it, 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 like cells to kill it, right? Which right. Means there's guess... something like 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 a foreign body with foreign genetics successfully suppresses the human immune system. Right. It's like, well, that looks a lot like a tumor, actually. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's harder with a tumor because it's actually sharing your genome mostly, but not completely. Mm-hmm. Um, harder with... to recognize, or 
Yeah, right. It 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 looks more like self. Right. On the surface, it looks a little bit like non-self, but it's a small amount. Whereas, like a fetus is half, yeah. right? Half non-self. Yeah. And yet, our body doesn't kill it. Yeah. Right. And um, it well, does look like very, there's this very like defined interface between them, and and yeah, that's right. And a lot of um, this is one of the things that that like causes kind of low human fertility, or like sort of lower than lower than theoretical fertility is a lot of the fetuses actually don't work out because they don't yeah, actually true. manage to thread that needle. Yeah, um, the question is at what level, level they're failing, right? Like, like, for sure, if they fail to evade the immune system, that does actually become very problematic, like, later in pregnancy, for oh, sure. Oh, yeah, that happens later. Really no, early like in pregnancy, it does seem like there are unknown mechanisms that are selecting against things like chromosomal abnormalities and things yeah. like that. Um, that whole, like... Um, evolutionary developmental uh process though like we we only barely understand what's going yeah, on there. yeah no, it's, it's crazy like there's, there's very complex interactions between the mother and the and the, the kid and very interesting like evolutionary game theory kind of stuff yep. if you study Absolutely. the actual incentives on the the, the different genomes it's, it's and like you can stuff. totally use game theory to think about cancer too right? right it is it is effectively human cells deciding that they're a single-celled organism Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, in, in many ways, like cancer is like the libertarians of the body. <laughs> like, All right. I'm a sovereign citizen just traveling the land. Should I be offended or not? I'm not sure. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah, no, no, that is, um, <laughs> that is a not totally fair, but not totally unfair. <laughs> Yeah, I think some of what I find so, like, freaky and scary about cancer is it's not just that it's doing its own thing. It's actively convincing the other cells in the body to cooperate with it. Right. That's what makes it so freaking scary. Right. If it were just this completely walled-off thing, which, like, can't happen. Like, you get, like, teratomas or you have, like, a twin that's just sort of, like, lodged in there. Like, right. like all, all kinds of weird stuff happens. Like, your body can actually just, like, wall things off and just leave it there. Right. Right? Cancer's scary because it does eventually figure out a way to coordinate. Yeah. But it's always pressing defect. Yeah. And, and it's gotten the rest of, of the body to always press cooperate, right? It's like shuttling it nutrients of, of all sorts of types. It's yeah, like yeah. building new blood vessels for it. Like, yeah, your yeah. body's going out of its way to help the cancer yeah. because it's like this trusted system that's like, hey, I need more resources, right? Yeah, and, yeah. and your whole body's like, oh, cool, good, let's feed it. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, <clears throat> to get into some of the, like, uh, the anti-aging discussion, like, this is some of the... the theoretical problems with the architecture of right. like the highly engineered individual organism right. is it requires this very high level of internal cooperation that is yep. prone to abuse. And it's prone to abuse, but then it's also just prone to like degradation. Yeah. To, it's a, right. it's prone to entropy and abuse basically yep. like it's, things go off over time. And so that's, that's like, exactly right. that's, that's the big theoretical barrier to like individual immortality, let's say. Right. Um, yeah, I have a whole bunch of thoughts on that. So, um, obviously there are lots of theories of aging, right? And and some people actually do believe there's, like, a sort of, like, aging clock or switch where, like, our genes actually then try to kill us at a certain point. I th I personally think that makes no sense. Yeah, um, yeah I am, I'm not I sure why that would happen. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> and if it does yeah. happen, maybe there's a reason. Why. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they, yeah, some of the arguments are sort of 
bad group selection sort of stuff, but yeah, like, but that but, doesn't really work. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, there there are plenty of weird puzzles about humans that aren't super well explained. Like, why do you know females live for much longer than they're fertile? Like, most animals are fertile till they die, and then they die. Yeah. Right, but like humans don't. So, like, is there some reason that sort of you know females are giving up on like decades of like fertile lifespan? Yeah, I mean. Speaking purely sort of anecdotally, I do very much appreciate the grandparents <laughs> of my kids, right? It's totally, like, it, it's right. It's very useful to have the the old folks around helping out. Is is that even more useful though than than squeezing out your own marginal kid? I mean, that's like yeah. Well, that's that's, that's an interesting, interesting question, question, right? Yeah. I don't um, know. and and like I don't think that I have the perfect answer to this puzzle but like i don't think that it's totally crazy the idea that there's some some sort of switch right because yeah. like we do also see that um you know with like salmon right they like swim upstream they breed and then they actually just die like that, that seems like a very clear case where there is a switch but it's like abrupt and sudden yeah. and it's immediately post like and we sort of like we a thousand babies yeah we sort of know how why that is as well right it's they they are providing food for the kids yeah so, so, like, look, I mean, I think um, there are kind of, like, reasons to believe that such switches exist, but I see no evidence of that in, like, every long-lived, like, animal species, right? Yeah. As far as I can tell, we're pushing out the barrier on, like, how long we can live. And, like, some of the evidence, I think, for the, like, gradual, like, decay hypothesis is if you look at the really long-lived animals, like, whales that live, like, 200 years or something right. like that, or, like, parrots or right? Like... They have much, much more, like, damage repair mechanisms than short-lived things do. Right. right? And, you know, it's like... So, yeah, like, there's an like, actual engineering problem being solved there that, they're, that's, that they are solving that's that other animals exactly are not right. solving. That's... Yeah. Ex right. And, and so that, that certainly gives, gives more sort of hope and credence to the idea that, like, humans could substantially improve their longevity it's just a question of how right, right. it's like, like do we need very more very advanced genetic engineering <laughs> <laughs> right which which is extremely difficult yeah extremely difficult unless you're doing germline editing right which is like a really huge uh very contentious thing right now you mean you mean editing the you can make the, the embryo and then you can edit the embryo it's just a few cells and yeah you can basically even, guarantee that even that, that it gets into every single cell we don't know how to write genetic code <laughs> it's yeah like we can do some things <laughs> But like yeah <laughs> right sure um, but but yeah navigating it, it's just like the way the way that genetic code was written right. you know historically it's it's like written empirically right so it yeah no, and, and totally. so which means it has no it doesn't necessarily have any any like conceptual structure to it what it has is like it's it, speaking like from sort of in neural network terms, it's like it's differentiable yeah. enough that evolution's basically able right. to walk the space empirically. Yeah, true. Um, and, and so like genetic we, we editing do that might on a like meaningful yeah, yeah sort of genetic scale. genetic editing might end up being like uh, you know trying to tweak a million node neural network by hand. So uh, to come back to the idea of like the simple parts of a complex system, right? You can look at the actual mechanisms that evolution uses to uh, produce these changes. And yeah, something like changing like each individual base pair until you have a totally new gene that hasn't existed before. Like, right. So we're it not close to, be, to doing that. It doesn't have to be fully de novo. It could be like... Sometimes they just increase copy number of one gene. Right. It's like just we could do that with like tumor suppressor genes, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. like maybe like P53, we need like 100 copies of that 
and maybe we just easily sort of insert like a yeah. hundred extra copies and it's like okay now like we're much more likely to kill cells that like should be dying yeah so okay so we're talking about the anti-aging stuff now let's yeah so a little bit of history on this like in the 70s you know the the, the line was going up right yeah. there was uh the the lifespan, average lifespan was increasing. People looked at that curve. They're like, hey, this... Maybe it's like a just... few years per decade level. Right. Like, it's like that, maybe, yeah. maybe we'll reach like, um, you know, people were talking Longevity about... Like escape velocity. Escape velocity and <laughs> yeah, stuff yeah. where it's like two decades per decade or something, right? <laughs> um, but, I mean, one of the things that like bugs me about about those memes is like the way the average lifespan was increasing was finding fewer ways to kill ourselves early. Right. Like, <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and so like, there's yeah. a, there's a hard limit on that, totally. which is like, okay, well we're no longer killing ourselves early. Now we're being killed by age. Right. And, um, and, and, and so like, we've kind of reached this plateau or, or like we're near this plateau of theoretical human lifespan given sort of good material circumstances, which right. is like, you lived in like 90 to 110, right? Um, and so I'm curious what kind of more fundamental approaches mm -hmm. are being looked at in this space. Like, could we actually get past 120? Right. Like, obviously, solving the aging thing would be a really interesting thing because we lose a huge amount of human capital to age yep. every year, right? Yeah. Old people are generally wise. They've got a lot of experience. They understand how things work. Yeah, they have a, a lot of capabilities. Like it's, it's, um, yeah. I mean, and then of course, you know, our loved ones. So it's like, yeah, it's yeah. tragic, but then also like from a, f a purely functional perspective, yeah, of like looking at society, society, it's like society would be way richer if we could live longer. Yep. And, and so yep. like what, what sort of promising, is yep. there anything even promising in this area? Cause like, or is it just like, all right, there's just. The design life of the system is 90 years, and beyond that, you're yeah. on your own. Like, Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so uh, the first thing I'll say is, like, health span and lifespan are quite different concepts. And yes, I think people important. have been more bullish on extending health span for longer. And I think that is largely what we've been doing, right? Yeah, um, and you see, you do see people, like, quite healthy and vigorous into their 70s if they're doing the right lifestyle stuff. If they stuff. do the right stuff, yeah. exactly. Um, and like, I do think some of the current therapies that are underway, like senescent cell clearance will, will increase that healthy lifespan, right? Increasing maximum lifespan, we start getting much trickier design constraints, as you say, which yeah. isn't to say that, that those can't be changed, but they're there and they're actually pretty hard. Um, so when we look at, at sort of shorter lived organisms, there are ways to extend their lifespan. Almost all of them, but not all of them, almost all of them are around something on the kind of nutrient sensing and growth pathways, right? Uh -huh. um, it's a little bit tricky when you're kind of extrapolating the stuff from like creatures that sort of grow for their whole lifespan and then die. Like, like mice. a saltwater crocodile. Yeah. <laughs> like I hear they live a long time, but they, they sort of yeah. just continuously at, at some point you get too massive. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like if you're, if you're able to continuously grow, you can shrug off a lot of damage. Whereas if you get to a full sort of like adult size and then stop growing, yeah, uh, you can't just like divide like metabolic waste products between new cells. Like, like you have to have something to like get rid of them or change them or something. Right. Right. Um, and so, uh, Oh, that's interesting. Like the body, if, if you're growing, um, at, at some rate, you're able to yeah. outgrow 
some yep. of the entropy that that could catch up with you. That's right. This is, I mean, this is sort of like relates to the kind of critique people sometimes make of of uh, how we run society. Like, you know, right. it's, it's very unsustainable to be like. Uh, right, we assume three percent per year right. uh, growth rate requiring growth. Yeah, it's like, and we don't have a solution. It's like, all right, yep. what if we have a bit of negative growth for like a couple decades? Like, what does yeah. this do to the social order? Very problematic. Order? Yeah. Like this, this could completely wreck us, right? And not not because there's any like loss of fundamentals, but just like a bunch of social problems catch up with us that we're being suppressed by. Yeah, growth. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, when like the pie is growing, everyone feels good about like you know accepting that that they get a, a small slice of a like larger pie. Right. When the pie is shrinking, all of a sudden everyone wants to defend what they yeah, have to do. Everyone's right? thinking, all right, how do I? And and it becomes an inherently zero sum kind of thing. That's right. Yeah, and That's and right. so in the body, in the body, it also becomes a very difficult engineering problem of like, all right, now we have to really be careful with accounting for everything really well. Yeah, that's you right. You can't just outgrow your problems. And like, that's basically why we have sort of stem cell lines and then the like somatic cell lines, right? Where right. you have these somatic cells of the body doing all the heavy lifting, but they get all the damage. And then when you don't need them anymore, you just get rid of them. And yeah. then you have stem cells that have been like relatively taking it easy and trying to not accumulate as much damage that like repopulate the body. Right. Yeah. So it's clear that the system is thinking about that. The problem is at its root, though, the system is ultimately self-renewing. And, you know, like cosmic rays can introduce double strand breaks in your DNA of a right. stem cell that's otherwise totally quiet. Right. Like on, on yeah. some level, it's very hard to have a completely internally renewing system. Yeah. Entropy gets in. Yeah. And you can you can shunt a lot of it out, but but at the very base of that pyramid, you you, you ultimately have DNA that has to get like transcribed by proteins into yeah. RNA, right? It's like there there are, there are lots of complex biological steps, yeah. all of which are like and somewhat stochastic, and so you can just lose like you know percentage points of efficiency on yeah. the margin. But this is like this is like the theoretical limit on aging. Um, or lifespan, right? That this isn't necessarily the practical limit on lifespan. Like that right. could be, you know, suppose suppose the only problem left is like cosmic ray entropy and, and transcription yeah. errors. Yeah, right. <laughs> then you know maybe that's actually fine for like a thousand year lifespan. Yeah, totally. Um, if if we've solved all these other things. On the other hand, maybe it's like I mean, or longer, right? Maybe but it's like, like I think... maybe it's only one hundred and forty years with with like just that ceiling. But um, but my guess other is that what this that means is that. Us the answer has to come from outside the body on some level, right? You know, yeah. as you said, like surgery was like a great thing, right? We have like organ transplants, right? Like that, that's ultimately a system from, from outside the body. It's like you had for many reasons, like one of your vital organs failed. Like if, if you could just like replace that organ, all of a sudden that's not a constraint anymore, yeah. right? You've, 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 you, you have managed to sort of introduce youthfulness from outside the system. And I think the ultimate answer has to look something like that, right? So, like, yeah. a part of the kind of SENS platform is if we really want to deal so with SENS being Aubrey de Grey's approach? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would say some of it is just really simple stuff like, hey, we need to clear senescent cells, obviously. Yeah. But then his, like, plan for cancer, which is what struck everyone as, like, seemingly crazy, it's like, don't let the body have stem cells anymore because that's how you eventually get cancer. Oh. Have Have the entire body be, like final somatic cells and just periodically like give the body new stem cells from outside periodically and like folks think that's sort of crazy most of the cells in our body are pretty long-lived though 
right? And like these uh, stem cell niches can last for a surprisingly long time, right? Huh. So like it, it seems crazy from a difficult engineering perspective, but like Aubrey got there because he said, let's take cancer seriously, right? Like, right. Let's actually not give the body the ability to regenerate itself, but let's always be ready with, with some external source to sort of help the body do that. Yeah, and if you went down that approach, that approach, it like very fundamentally changes the like the nature of the human condition in an important way. It's yeah. like you, you are now actually physically dependent on absolutely this, this healthcare system. Whereas like True. You know, pe- people talk about like how important healthcare is and so on, but like the vast majority of people healthy people like very very rarely interact with the healthcare yeah. system because they don't need totally. to it's it's purely like fixing problems it's not it's not like okay we're yeah. actually going to do something that hooks you up to this system in, right in... it isn't actually healthcare it's disease care yeah exactly <laughs> that is pretending to be healthcare right health healthcare is like are you eating plato's diet and <laughs> and then like we figured out some things in disease care yeah um yeah like like for myself like i part of the reason, you know, I started this off with like, is this even real is, is cause like yeah. me and a lot of, you know, a lot of people I know are generally healthy. We don't have to interact with the healthcare system at all. Right. And, and like, I just don't know how, because we are exquisitely designed machines. Right? I mean, it's like, yeah, you know, it's <laughs> like, well, you're on you're right. It's like the system basically works like the normal thing basically works. Occasionally you fall yeah. off the path, you break your arm, you're, you get a disease, whatever. Um, and sometimes the healthcare can get you back on the path, but like, I've not interacted with that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so there's this, yeah, it's, it's this, this very interesting change from like that kind of, um, uh, paradigm of healthcare to a, like more proactive interventionary right healthcare, which ultimately like that's where kind of anti-aging therapies would have to go. Right? Yeah. At some point so. we have to make an intervention of some kind and like maybe that's just like we infect you with this like you know one virus that just rewrites your genome you know once per like hundred years like i mean it it, yeah yeah i mean it could be that it could look as simple as as vaccines but it could also look very it could also be more like the sort of like um Heinlein-esque vision where like you go to a clinic and they like swap out all your blood and your organs they like do these like treatments on you and you're like and, and and you're like there for weeks, right? Where they're yeah. fixing every single piece of your body, and like, okay. yeah, that, like, that maybe gets us a thousands of years or something. Stem cell style, like grow a new body, and then <laughs> like just swap over the brain. Yeah, yeah, something. I mean, you know that that uh, you you get into interesting questions here, about, like what's actually worth doing, and like like one of the things. Um, I mean, I, I would take a full body transplant if I had yeah. absolutely no, yeah, no, yeah. no sort of option to keep this one. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and so, like, that allows you to keep your knowledge, basically. And that's that's something, something that's really valuable. Um, one of the things that um, I like to sort of throw at people here is, like, well, we already have kind of immortality. It's called, like, reproduction. Right. right? And, like, if you actually... Uh, but that's only know, kind of immortality. I know. It's, like, sort of immortality, <laughs> but, like... A lot of the, um, and then you, you, you bring that up at the same time as, for example, the like fundamental, like thermodynamic impossibility of, of true immortality. And, and it's like, all right, well, at what level, like, where's, right. where's the trade-off point basically? Like, so at what level do we accept, accept um, death? 
when I had my first kid, I definitely had friends ask me like, so do you still care about living forever? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And like, no, uh, I have not changed at all. Like I still want to live. Right. Right. And like, um, I'll take that form of immortality if I have to, but I mean like similarly, like you can get immortality through your ideas or yeah, right? yeah. like it is more about what sort of thing you identify with. Yeah. And, um, I do think this is actually why, um, this gets into sort of sticky philosophical issues. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, there's, there's, there's a question of sort of what is identity really, but for like the sake of like contenting yourself on death's door, like identity is what you want to make it to be to feel better about the fact that you have a short life. Yeah. I mean, for for me, it's like, all right, now that like having, having sort of approached the problem of like, all right, we already have a, a like actually sort of permanent mechanism that involves recycling the body every now and then yeah and including the mind and uh and then we have this sort of like theoretical impossibility of not doing that um we might be able to push out that that horizon like have the individual live longer and then like what becomes enticing for me there is like all right well then i can actually accumulate more knowledge and execute more long-term plans yeah um there, and, and like broadly in society, we can have a society where we're accumulating more knowledge and executing more long-term plans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that so like that's kind of the compelling thing for me is like we by like if we could push out that that age limit, yeah. um, it it changes like one of these fundamental variables in in like how good society can be. Yeah, I totally concur. I totally concur. And and. And yeah, I mean, you know, even if we all get sort of eaten by rogue machines in like a hundred years from now, um, there is still this like sort of question of, um, is, is, is sort of extending someone's like, like actually useful sort of years of like, of, of, of like having a sound mind from like 60 or 70 to like 80 or 90, like that alone will have a big effect. Yeah. Right. Like, like actually even doing this stuff on the margin right like it's, still it's, could have a really big effect no it could have a very big effect because it's it's you're getting like 10 percent on what's fundamentally an exponential process right like the, yeah. the the growth of knowledge and wisdom is compounding um in important ways and uh, like you see this with um like some people who just keep going throughout their lives like they yeah, do their totally. best work right at the end yeah or they do their greatest work totally. right at the end because they're actually just managing to stay on that compounding track it varies a little bit by field, and I've looked into yeah. this a lot to, you know, uh, try to comfort myself about when I'm going to do my greatest work in yeah, life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it tends it tends to be the more the more wisdom heavy fields like politics, where yeah, where yeah. things last, uh, where the, the career lasts a long time. But but like some of it also is like accumulating enough power to even make a difference on some yeah. level, you know? Right, and Whereas, and that's I, and this isn't something you like. Not all this stuff has to be from like within a lot of it is you're building up a sort of a web assembly, of social ties yeah, an assembly of, of social resources yeah. that that that's like exactly right would not it is not something that necessarily can be passed on though we have mechanisms right. we're not using like uh you know hereditary succession and so on that that can help right, with that right but there is this fact of like 
an agent in 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 a society is able to like assemble resources that become vastly more valuable because they are together and because there's a plan associated with them. Right. And um, yeah, and and so it's actually like a really good thing. It's not just like oh yeah, power like they're just acquiring more power. That's why they're doing more, and it's a zero sum sort of power. But there's actually like a positive sum aspect to that, which is they are building machinery that is like vastly more sophisticated than than what someone could build by the time they're 30 or 40 right um and and that's machinery that like would be very valuable uh to society to be able to like hold around hold that stuff around more anyways i mean we could go on forever in this um the aging issue but like i i think unfortunately there's uh it doesn't look like there's sort of a lot of valid approaches to this um here's what i'll say i don't think i don't think that there's an impossibility theorem that says we need to live for 120 years no there's no animals that live like hundreds of years but we are Um, talking about like fundamentally new breakthroughs like it's not like we don't have an existing pathway where just like normal execution will get us there yeah i mean some some folks think maybe like the nutrient sensing pathways will work as well in humans as in something like mice i'm skeptical of that so robbery and and some Um, of the some of the reasons for that skepticism is like it a lot of that stuff is fundamentally about just like slowing down your metabolism we have like a life history thing yeah where it's like you could just sort of like drag out a a uh, is like slower, less vigorous, less active life. But yeah, most, I mean, I, most I know, people don't want to take that trade I, off. I know how to I know how to live a really long time. You you get in a spaceship and you go at light speed. Yeah, for, yeah for right. a while. Right? Like, okay, well that's that's great. But you get to meet your great 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 grandkids, but you don't actually get to do that much more. That's exactly stuff. right. You don't actually get subjective time from it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think I do think we could get beyond the kind of one twenty limit, um, but it's very hard and it requires serious engineering work. Yeah. Um, I don't feel like I'm seeing the kind of progress that would suggest we're going to get beyond one twenty within soon. yeah within the next like couple decades. Yeah. I would love to be wrong, and if we do find out something like really fundamental, right? I mean, it like it could be something like we find out that like double stranded DNA breaks causes like a hundred percent of all downstream problems. Like, well, okay. Then, then maybe actually we can like solve the answer with like one Manhattan project on this one problem, right? Yeah, like we've like, got the one factor. All right, we'll, we'll all just wear lead suits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but like, or it could be like introducing artificial organelles that like, you know, that are like made of metal or something that can like replace the like, like something, right? Yeah, like, who knows? like, it could look really crazy, yeah. but I'm saying like, um, yeah, like if there's one thing that I would say to sort of summarize what's been going wrong with medicine and how to make it sort of go right, yeah. like focus on on the parts of the system that are fundamental, that are simple, that are necessary conditions, that are bottlenecks, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. Don't try to intervene in the complex part of it, right? Yeah. Treat all of that as downstream of something else and figure out what the hell is at the base of that system. Right. right? What, are the, what are the fundamental levers you can pull that are sort of the That's right. external interface of the complex system in a way? Yeah. Yeah. So bringing this back to, to like your work and, and the more mundane, what actually goes on in the field, like what, right. what's it like inter, uh, investing in this stuff? Um yeah, like you guys look at it's really psychologically interesting. I would okay. say um, because so so many people that have actually done bio for their whole life are used to seeing things fail for seemingly random reasons. Right. That that there's this like um, 
I wouldn't quite call it defeatist, but it's close, right? Um, right. And, uh, you know, obviously... As an investor, I do have to believe that I can pick better than chance, right? Yeah. Um, and I think almost all investors believe they can, but definitely different degrees. And yeah. that certainly affects how they think about, like, financing and things, too. Um, but, like, where I really notice this is among the researchers. Yeah. Um, and I will ask people to, like, make predictions, and they'll almost never actually give me one. So they have, like, an attitude, like, okay, we're going to try this, and we'll see if it works, and maybe it won't. But, like, they don't, have, exactly right. they don't have, like, a strong plan that involves predictions. Yeah, very, very rarely. Oh, that's very you know? interesting. Um, Whereas in technology, it's more like, all right, we've got this fundamental... It's like insight. Moore's we just, Law, we right? We just need to execute Our business on, plan right. is a smooth exponential curve. Right. <laughs> just, right, or like we just need to execute on this fundamental insight um, that kind of predates the company or yeah. or something. And then, or like an, just executing an existing market. But yeah, I guess in health... So where do you think that comes from? Like they, they don't want to... A lot of experience of like doing stuff and not being sure why it worked or didn't, right? Like right. You just fail to control for one thing. And, and we find these things out over time through trial and error, but they end up being stuff that's like really hard to control or think about. Like um, they found that like uh, mice respond very differently to having male versus female handlers in the lab. Oh, man. <laughs> so it's like... Are we going to control for that? Right? It's yeah, like and that's, um, that's like um, <laughs> you know when they discovered X-rays. It's like suddenly you have to go back and question a bunch of other results. Yeah, it's like suddenly there's this thing that can affect your experiments that just like comes out of nowhere. Yep. Um, and you know who knows what those things are, right? So we've like recently found like the microbiome can affect how cancer drugs affect mice. Oh man. Yeah. Yep. Um, and like we found this out uh, because the um, uh, it was basically a program at the National Institute on Aging um, where they basically made these like three mouse colonies in three different parts of the country and they would like give them drugs. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they would end up seeing two colonies looked identical in how they responded to the drug. The third colony looked totally different. Like curves didn't overlap. Right? Wow. Yeah. You know, what the hell's going on? And, you know, they like tried stuff. Right. And they and they ended up needing to actually like. Uh, collect poop from all three places, mix it together, and then ship it back to all three labs. Right? Oh, wow. <laughs> like, like, that's the level at which we're talking here of, like, what you have to do to, like, control for these things that we didn't even know mattered. Yeah, 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 totally. So <laughs> it, so it's, like, to summarize, um, it, it's very much, like, not necessarily a space where determinate optimism is working yet. Um, even it, though you have these guys like it seems for some people, right? Like, okay, that's like, 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 I think that you know George Church or Ed Boyden, right? Like, they they actually have this like concrete, definite vision. So what what do they do? Um, I mean, Church has done a whole bunch of stuff, but like genome sequencing and synthesis in particular, basically has followed a like faster than Moore's law curve, right? right. With Ed Boyden, he very much is taking the sort of like interdisciplinary, including engineering approach, particularly on the brain, right? You know, he's, he's, he's like trying to figure out ways to read information out of the system. But like some of that can be like, let's make an electrode forest that's, you know, a thousand times more dense than currently exists. Like that's an engineering problem. Yeah, that's, yeah. Right? So, so like finding ways to sort of turn it into that. Yeah, turning, turning it into an engineering problem where it's just like, all right, normal progress of technology. We sort of know how to do that what are the ways we can get way better information or, or way yep. better abilities that are just engineering problems? Yep. 
And I would say if you look at a lot of the kind of fundamental breakthroughs, not, not stuff that's like necessarily translated yet into, um, into therapies, but just like how folks make progress scientifically. Yeah. Some of it is just like weird serendipity of like following curiosity. Yeah. Um, like, you know, SIRNA uh, was just like, because people were looking at like, you know, these, these plants that, that were showing these like sort of non Mendelian inheritance characteristics and they're like well what what could be like sort of interfering yeah, with that working right and it's like well there's these like small pieces of rna that are like changing transcription factors and like preventing certain things from like encoding or not like we had no idea there was any transmission going on on that level right right and until someone just looked same thing with like like what is crispr right folks were just looking at like bacterial genomes right? this is this weird sequence that shows up over and over and over again and then when, when folks actually started just out of sheer curiosity, like, well, what does it do? You know, we figure out it's like cutting up virus genomes. We're like, wait a minute. This is like in vivo gene editing in real time. It's been here the whole time, right? <laughs> like, and we, we didn't even know. We've been doing gene editing the whole time and it's right there, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, so like, I would say that's 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 like one, one, one sort of broad category, which is people are just like, this looks weird. What's going on? Let's just figure it out. Yeah. So, so basically there's a lot of just unknowns in the space. You're dealing yeah. with this very complex technological system or like, but the other thing is the tools development. Yeah. Right? Okay. It's tools like, we are gonna, you know, like, like it was really a profound moment to like discover the structure of DNA. Right. It's like they were using this like x-ray x-ray crystallography right this is yeah. like you know new technique like like no yeah, one had yeah. any idea what the hell would show up right it's like and then you just get this like crystal clear picture yeah like oh like this is how inheritance works right it unlocked right. everything right so um yeah tools and serendipity right mm -hmm. and like i think there are there's certainly ways to manufacture serendipity and you know this is again a whole other conversation, but I think the sort of current academic incentives are working against serendipity. Yeah, mostly. so let's talk about the human institution yeah. side of all this. I mean, yeah, this is yeah, sort yeah, of totally. like more our wheelhouse at Palladium, but uh, yeah. all this stuff has been extremely fascinating. But what's going on on the human institutions that like could be working better, could or or is dysfunctional in any way, or stuff that's like actually just working really well? We yeah. talked a little bit about the FDA. But what's going on in the research? What's going on in in the the market space? Or like how healthcare right. works? Like how um, are there are there sort of failures and successes in the human stuff? Yeah, um, sadly, I think more failures than successes. You know, there's there's, usual, there's sort of always 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 glimmers of hope that we're gonna reorganize the system. Um, and like I can sort of get into some of the promising stuff, but like. Um, the incentives on basic research are, are currently pretty bad. Like basically everyone is following these like short term gradients. They're not like trying to go for the moonshot stuff. Right. It's like, what, and what, what can I different than before? What can I get a grant to, to turn out some like deterministic research in 18 months? That's exactly right. And yeah. then you're doing the grant so you can get the next grant and like the grants are small and they're right. short term right. and I mean, honestly, even just down to, like, the very level of do you even have a chance to become a professor, right? Like, usually you, like, it, it is a big lottery to get into a PhD program. And then who ends up being your advisor more, more, more often than not determines what you're going to research the rest of your time, <laughs> right? Like, like, for decades. And, right. and like, even, even the idea that you need to go through, like, 
normal high school and then a college undergrad degree before you can even get your PhD and then maybe you're doing work, but you're probably going to postdoc. It's like, at what point do you actually empower people to even make a discovery, right? Like, right. why why isn't that happening when, when we're teenagers? Why do we have to be in our 30s? Like, that seems insane. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> what, I mean, fundamentally, you don't have, like, big patrons handing out no-strings-attached money to, like, brilliant researchers. That's exactly right. That is very, very uncommon. Yeah. Um, but, like, that can also point to the successes, right? I think, I think that the private philanthropy private philanthropy models are really trying to figure this out. Yeah. Um, the Howard Hughes Institute is much more interesting in that regard in okay. that um, they will hire you for long-term contracts, very big pots of money. Yeah. They also, though, actually put some, like, interesting strings on you in terms of not letting you necessarily just, like, go jump to do something else either. Right. Um, like, you know, they they basically don't let their sort of highly paid in investigators leave to work for like a private company or a startup right it's like right. there are serious strings yeah but like to a certain degree that's that's sort of giving them buy-in um some of it too is like they aren't just judging you on uh on the sort of output of of like academic publications which yeah. i think is a huge issue in the space yeah massive totally. issue but like internally if you're a team doing tools development for another team that's public facing that does get publications they internally credit you for that Right. And so like they will keep around groups that never publish anything, but are doing all the foundational work to like get the publications for other people. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like in academia, like you're not going to get like, like a grant for that, much less like promoted inside college. So, so they're actually doing a more sophisticated accounting than, than most of the yeah. field is doing because most of the field is just doing accounting by like citation counts and publications and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, that's like a kind of older example, but like the kind of new tech money has been a bit more interesting. Um, I would actually say the the um, sort of most most unfortunate thing was um, Larry Ellison. What he did is he just took a bunch of money and he looked at all of the projects that almost but didn't quite meet the funding line from the government and then just funded those oh, projects. He yeah. was literally funding the like marginal science that didn't get done through the grant program. Right. Which, which means like, that why? why would you do that? <laughs> structurally, it's just bad grants. <laughs> right. But you know, the flip side is like the open philanthropy project, Chan Zuckerberg, like they're, they're much more interested in like, okay, let's, let's give these like nine to 10 figure, you know, massive grants. Right. Well, wow. 10, not yeah. quite eight to nine. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, right. And, and like, that is, really interesting right like okay. you can actually pour enough resources in through these private channels to get somewhere real right? yeah and i mean like before the 20th century that's kind of how a lot of the science worked so a lot of it was done at a, low, a smaller scale because yeah you know we hadn't we hadn't hit the like the um just like the, le the level of sophistication needed that we have now um, so like supply and demand are are super super tricky in this space and like uh, what a lot of folks at the top now are concerned about is basically we've turned PhD programs they they like used to be the sort of training ground where the older people were transmitting the like the 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 like methods of doing good groundbreaking science yeah. to a few students now they've turned into these like labor programs like like so many more PhD students are like admitted to these programs and there's only like a little bit more jobs as professors and yeah. so you kind of have to ask what's what is actually going on there and like when you look at what these students are doing they're like hand pipetting in labs for years 
on behalf of the professors. Yeah, they're not really learning. They're, they're basically acting as glorified technicians. That's exactly right. Yeah. When, like, actually, when you look at what's happening in industry, like, no one hands, hand, like, pets anything, right? And, and so they're, like, learning this sort of outdated skill set that's, like, oddly specific in the totally wrong areas, right? It's, oh, like, not, not sort of up to, like, industry standards, and it's not the kind of work that's actually going to land you a professorship someday. Right. Um, and are they even transmitting the knowledge? I mean, that's one... Uh... Well, no, right? So, mostly no. And yeah. it's interesting because if you ask the really good professors, like, you know, you have quite a few PhD students, like, can can you tell which ones are, like, actually going to go on to do something? They, they almost all do. Yeah. Right? Like, they know which students are just sort of there because they're, like, working, and which students yeah. they've handpicked, and they're like, these are the ones that are going to go on to do great things. Like, you can tell. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. Which creates kind of a a weird dynamic because, like, I wish people were kind of more more honest. I think quite a few people kind of go in naively, kind of wanting to like do science and like be a scientist. Right, and you're never you're never actually you're never actually told that you're the guy who's not going to make it. Yeah, not going to make it, and you just end up going through the thing, and you're like, all right, I've got a PhD now. Now what? And so yeah, we have like way more PhDs than we used to, and there there's even more things like more patents filed per year. But, right. but there's, like, fewer actual breakthroughs you can point to right. than, like, you know, the, like, last 50 years, right? right. <laughs> it's like, hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, do you have any thoughts on, on what's going on there? Like, what's the what's the fundamental institutional thing that's gone wrong? Uh, one of the hypotheses I've heard is after the war with the massive expansion of the education program, it's like yeah. it, it killed a lot of the the lineages of knowledge because yeah. the influx of students basically meant that it was very difficult to do an actual apprenticeship kind of model. Yeah, totally. Um, I think, I think that is a, a much, much bigger area on the PhD level, right? Cause yeah. I mean, even, even before, like when you're getting a bachelor's, like sure, like now, you know, two thirds or something like try to go to college, but even when it was one third and it was still pretty large class yeah. sizes, like how, how how sort of one-on-one that ever was is like somewhat questionable but like right. phd programs used to be pretty like one-to-one transmission right <laughs> and you know now it's like there there are some people that have labs of like dozens or even like more than a hundred phd students for, wow. for one pi wow and it's like i talked to those people and they're like lucky to see their pi once a month wow it's like how how could they possibly be learning how to like do great work yeah, that's not what's happening. <laughs> like, there's just zero chance that that's gonna like produce a genius. You know. Yeah, and this is this is one of the most important problems. I mean, like we were talking a little bit about the loss of knowledge from the aging stuff, and like, yeah. But uh, it even makes it more important when yeah. when we have these short lifespans that we have to like transmit that yeah, knowledge yeah, no, quickly we, and efficiently. We, right, we do have these short <laughs> lifespans. We have to master this ability to pass traditions of knowledge down between generations. It's like, you know picking successors that actually yep. are going to work well. Like we had the article from Samo uh, on Botswana, how they've actually managed to keep some pretty competent statecraft yep. revolving around this core dynasty that actually is handpicking it's, the successors. It's good, yeah. yeah. Right. And, it's, it's actually good at solving this problem. Yeah, and and yeah, this is one of these, these very fundamental problems, and, and it kind of comes back to you know, right at the beginning we were talking about some of the modernist ideas of like, oh, you can just like systematize everything and build these like highly industrialized systems to produce, you know, 
medicine or in this case human capital. Right. We've like, created this like patent factory. This, right. You can't this, like, lab lab experiment factory. Right. And that's <laughs> not actually how it really works. You're talking about a more organic system of like you've got this huge system of tacit knowledge that this this master has and they need to teach it to a student. Yep. Um or ideally a few students, but not not too many more than that, because then it, you're losing... Yeah, it's very hard to transmit thing. on some level. Yeah. Yeah, and... Yeah, and so it's like this big this big failure of, of a lot of the sort of modern paradigm of institutional design is this kind of yeah. trying to approach it industrially. Like, this is still the problem in education, right? It's like we approach education as, like, this industrial process of, like, we take unformed students in we put them through this uniform process we yeah. put them out the other side we do some like quality assurance testing yep and and it, it's like very much this this <laughs> industrialized process but like that's not how people uh, work right no and, totally not at all um, not at all and yeah and, and and so this is like we're gonna need better paradigms for thinking about how to do human knowledge transmission and yeah i totally and, concur um and like how to organize humans and this like very much relates sort of to the general problem uh we were talking about earlier of like we don't know how to do complex systems very well and that applies to human society just as it, much it as applies it to, to the almost, body almost and everything the brain, right and, yeah it's so i wonder whether like a breakthrough in the area of complex systems could could change things or whether That's it would have totally to totally come... been a thought of mine the question is what does a science of complex systems look like or is there even such a thing like does that even make sense like it right. might be that the nature of complex systems is such that you need a totally different kind of epistemic process to look right. at them i mean obviously still based on I like i think that's not necessarily wrong right um i do take hayek on this point very seriously right yeah um, exactly and and it's like don't do scientism right, right. like you 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 actually have to be honest about how you get information on these systems and like what you can and can't do. And yeah. he basically didn't believe that with a, you know, system the size of the U S economy that, that you could perfectly predict the, the, the sort of outcome of that size system. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, you, and you can't, but what you can do is you can come up with realistic toy systems, right? Yeah. Well, the other thing you can do is you can create little pieces that, you know, fulfill yeah. some useful function within the larger complex system and just like drop them on the system and let it integrate them. Right. Right. And that's where Which is sort of what companies do, right? Right. They're, that's what like, that's why we're companies this work. little piece of the larger economy and are sort of saying like we're doing it this way now. Yeah. Or like, right. okay, the, the the economy needs a good system of law. So let's make sure we've got the corporate law really sorted out. Yeah. Right, and then I know that's yeah, all based on this very empirical approach, and ideally, um, but like similarly in this educational kind of space and in the area of human institutions, you're talking about okay, can we first of all do we have a space where these things can actually compete and thrive or fail right. based on whether they work, and then and then let's let's start building different things based on hypotheses and, and just drop them in like. Yeah. Well, how do you do like an entrepreneurial research lab right. where like what's, what's the model where like you can actually experiment to long enough dimensions organizationally yeah. to do something like real yeah, knowledge transmission right. or something. Right. And you know, that's, that's sort of where I come back to like those sort of private 
philanthropy groups, I think, are trying to actually do that yeah. and like really, really take that seriously. So I'm actually pretty bullish on those approaches over the long term. Um, and then, like in in terms of working within the system, you know, I think Boyden sort of tries tries to do that internally, right? And like a lot of it is about people that have gotten to a certain level of success, sort of can use that success to give top cover. Right. And like yeah. that, that's, that's actually one of the most important things that folks like don't often think about is like, you can get someone inside the system who had to play that game to get there, can create top cover to get people under them into a somewhat better system. So, yeah. You can do something better. This is one of the things when I was looking into like, okay, fundamentally, how well can we understand society? How well can we build a discourse of, um, sociology? Yeah. One of the fundamental problems there is you're inherently going to run up against, um, like a sociology, especially you're going to run up against existing narratives and, and you're going to end up with a lot of opposition. Yeah. And so any research, any truly like interesting research is inherently going to step on a lot of toes and needs a powerful patron who can say, Hey, look, we're doing this. And anyone who's getting their toes stepped on, well, they'll just have to get out of the way, right? Because otherwise it it kills the new thing. I mean, I think that there are certain, certain areas of biology that sort of fall prey to that, right? Like, uh, it would be very hard to come up with a new theory of like evolution or something. So it just has like so many consequences. But if it's something like we've just figured out a way to cure a disease that no one else figured out, there's no sort of natural opposition, yeah, no, it's, it's going to be, way. in the biology, right. it's going to be more like your research methods and it's going to be your, yeah. your organization because you are implicitly, like by doing something differently, right. you're, you're competing for grant funding. Well, you're competing right. for grant funding, but you're also implicitly condemning the the existing yeah, uh, yeah totally. the existing structures by doing something differently. Yeah, totally. Um, I suppose my point is more with like sociology, like, yeah, there's like a fight to even get the slots to do sociology, but then also like some theory you come up with has like radical implications for society. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. Right? Whereas it's with like, like hard sciences, sometimes it's like player versus environment, not just like, you know, player yeah, versus yeah. player. Yeah. Well, it's like, and that's actually an easier fight that more people can get behind. Like actually there's broad bipartisan support to increase funding, increase government funding to basic research. Yeah. Like very few things these days are actually bipartisan. Yeah. But it's because we're sort of actually part of this collective mission to, like, fight this outside force. Yeah, well, it's because, like, people don't expect their their sort of base of power to be disrupted by, like, any given breakthrough in science. Yeah. Whereas... I mean, um, it, it does end up being that way among, like, you know, early stage startups. Like, how many gene therapy methods are going to be the method, right? Right, right. I mean, um, you can find people who, who are going to get stepped on, but it's much less systematic, I yeah. think. Uh, whereas if you're looking at the nature of society and you look at, all right, well, how does power actually work? And like, yeah. let's map out the actual power landscape and how the U S actually works. And it's like, Oh, well, it turns out it's not a democracy. It's this other thing that works like this. And then there's these like dysfunctional groups, you know, there's like these groups are fighting and like this group is actually just like causing a totally parasitic effect. And it's totally a problem. And like, you can't, yeah, yeah. you can't, put concretes on those kind of things uh, without um, stepping on a lot of toes. But anyways, I mean, that's that's just something that, like, when I was looking through, like, all right, how do we have to do palladium? Like, what are the things that we're going to be able to 
to yeah. to do here. Like, you can't really break ground um, without a powerful patron uh, in in some of these kind of areas, right, and, right, and right. so that's one of the things you have to navigate around. And yeah, so basically, I just imagine that there's going to be similar things, perhaps less intensive, but there's going to be similar things in the in the space in in sort of all forms of research, right? And, and this is what you're saying, like this top cover role is actually a very important role of like, can you actually, you know, take take some take some piece of like research area and draw a wall around it, like, all right, I'm going to do something yeah. different here, and and. I have the power to like make it actually go through instead of having the, the usual kind of institutional structures digested. Yeah, totally. And like, it is notable that like Ed Boyden as is technically employed by the media lab, the MIT media lab. Uh-huh. And, and he's like one of like the greatest scientists, right. right? It's like, well, why is he at the media lab? Well, it's because they decided to give him a chance. Right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like doing something really different. Right. Right. Um, but how many media labs are there? Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there, there have been some like interesting proposals, you know, some of it's like, uh, putting restrictions on how many grants can go to like existing labs versus new labs. That's, that's like a really sort of crappy hack, but, yeah, it's a really but, crude way to do it. but it does sort of break you out of that pattern of like, well, we funded this lab last year, we should fund it this year. Right. right. There's a lot of that, um, at both the NIH and the Department of Defense, actually, there's like a lot of, a lot of sort of research money that is spent out of habit. And, and, okay. and, and sort of less going to like, well, what is the actual sort of cutting edge new thing? Yeah. I will say this is one area where like increasing the amount of spending can can actually buy you some some short-term leverage because you can fund some new stuff that you weren't funding before. Yeah. It's very hard to take funding from old programs. Yeah. Well, this comes so, back to like the growth can allow you to deal with. That's exactly right. Just pumped on a bunch of problems. Um, the problem is like you're getting a like fixed amount per like percent growth, right? Right. Which is because like yeah, that very... falls into the same spending patterns that made the rest of the money not effective. Yeah. When well, this this comes back to like, you know, we we talked earlier a little bit about we're going to be we're spending a lot of our industrial capacity on health. Yeah. Right. It's it's a shockingly high percent. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is this is interesting, especially like you know, as someone who basically doesn't have to interact with the system very much and like most people I know don't have to interact with the system very yeah, much. Yeah, twenty percent of like everything you earn is like implicitly going to the system. Right. And and it's like well that's And that's going up. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's crazy. And and so like it so you have um you have this like enormous consumption of resources. And the question is like, where's that all going? Right. Right. And, and so some of it goes into all these like, um, you know, disease care and so on. Like in, in some cases there are a lot of, uh, good things that that's doing, but then there's all the administrative overhead. There's the, and then there's the question, like this is a really tricky question of, well, how much do you spend on end of layer? And the end of life care. Yeah, we totally haven't touched on that at all. But this is actually a huge thing, and is and is because worth saying, right? Most of the money is not going to R and D of new drugs. Most of the money isn't even going to pharmaceuticals. Most of the money is going to hospitals. Right. Is going to nursing homes. Yeah. Right. It's going to doctors. It's going to hospital administrators. Like yeah. Actually breaking down the spending, like yeah, drugs seem like they're really freaking expensive. Like it has nothing on how expensive hospitals are. Right. <laughs> 
What's going on there? Like, why you you see these crazy bills that people get? They go to the hospital. It's like ten thousand dollars a night, and it's like, what? Oh yeah, what happened? Like, what's going on? (laughs) Right. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, The short answer is these are not prices that people are supposed to be charged. There's this master list of prices. And what this actually is, this is a like negotiating shelling point that's a starting point between the hospitals and the insurance companies that's supposed right. to get bid down by the insurance companies. Right. And the problem is, if you don't have insurance, sometimes what the hospital does, they just pull the price off of the master list and just give it to you as a consumer. Right. Right. <laughs> but like, you, you were never meant to pay that money. <laughs> right. And then and, and you've fallen through this weird crack in the system. Where, where where there is this sort of like fallback mode that is like horrible right right and and like you and and so like there are different things you can do both on the hospital and the drug side like you actually can talk to hospitals and be like I don't have insurance let's like negotiate a price like you can actually do that sometimes yeah which is of course dif- difficult to do if you really do need yeah super hard care yeah like, like you know you come in with a broken arm it's like alright which is why people I'm gonna walk out of here unless yeah. you like, <laughs> give me a, give me a better price I'm just gonna leave this flopping here right in front of you yeah no right? it's like you're, yeah you're this like captive audience and like most most hospitals will give you financial aid, but like you know they'll make a legitimate attempt to see like well how much can you pay, right right and like that level of price discrimination starting from like an extremely high place like working back like oh that's brutal yeah that's that's extremely extremely brutal. yeah but and and then so there's like how much they're charging the customer and then there's like how much actual. Yeah, just like why is it so being, expensive? Yeah, yeah. How much actual value is being consumed here? Like totally, like totally. Do are they are they like spending enormous amounts of money on things they don't have to be spending money on, or like is there like a lot of the time when you get really high prices like that, it's because there's no existing pressure to lower prices. Yeah, right? um, and, and usually if, they, if they had that pressure, they could find ways. Right. Usually, it's a combination of something being subsidized by the government, but then also some sort of constraint on like. Uh, supply in in some way and like you see this with like education right it's like everyone's gonna go to college we'll give like tons of student loans you know and like by the way you sort of can't like compete on like all these margins right Um, and so you see this in healthcare education right so effectively we we have this system where we sort of pretend that it's private in the U.S., but yeah, it's, like, really at isn't. best, like, half private, like, Yeah, or there's some, there's some private <laughs> actors allowed in the system somewhere. Right, and, like, that just creates this really weird incentive structure when, when you sort of do it halfway, right? Yeah. And, like, if you see something like Singapore, there's, like, public involvement in the healthcare system to a significant degree, but they, like, allow the pricing structure to work. Right. Whereas, like, the pricing structure has gotten really disrupted in the U.S. And also in Europe, but in a very different way. Right. right. Um, yeah, well, so much of these things are just created by, like, how the problem has been regulated politically. Like, yeah. like what style of oversight has it, has it, it received? And this yeah, is one so of the things, like, you know, people are always putting out these ambitious, like, single-player healthcare plans where it's like, right. all right, we're just going to do free healthcare or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But, like... Right. It's, it's not like that. Free. That's great. You can yeah. like give people access to healthcare, but at some point you have to make a decision of 
how much healthcare are they going to consume? Because like you can actually consume an infinite amount of healthcare. Yeah. Um, and and you and it's not good if that's actually good for health. Yeah. You may even want to cons- like especially with the end of life stuff, right? It's like there's always more you can do. Oh, I know. Yeah. And and then and the other side is like, is there actually pressure to restructure the system and, right. and pair those prices down? Like you can't. It's clear I, there's I don't pressure think you, to restructure it. The question is just what is the structure that results from that pressure? Yeah. Well, and and. <laughs> I mean, I guess a big question I would ask is, like, suppose they were going to just restructure the whole thing and somehow radically lower prices. Like, you know, it's great if if people don't have to pay for it, but, I mean, the work is still getting done. It's still coming out of our industrial capacity. Yeah, absolutely. These are very real costs. So, like, what... actual real costs. Right. It's it's not just, like, oh, some, some poor person, like, wasn't able to afford this thing. It's, like, we're spending a fifth of our GDP on this. Yeah, like, we are we are much poorer because we haven't solved this problem. Yeah, and 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 sicker. Yeah, and, <laughs> and like, so like what? Uh, like at some point you need to you need to be scaling the thing back, right? You need you need to be you need to have that like cost cutting push. Which the politicians call rationing, and both sides of the aisle insist they're not going to do that. <laughs> right, and, and no one wants. Yeah. What? And there's like rationing to the consumer, and then there's like internally like disciplining that huge bureaucracy and these huge systems to actually figure out how to give lower prices. Yeah. So like, um, it's notable that we sort of look to Europe and say like, look at how much less they spend on healthcare than us. They're spending like half as much. But then if you look outside of Europe where, you know, it's like prices set for like everything by a like board from the government, it's like, yeah, it's like healthcare is like a 10th <laughs> right, right, and, and so we like sort of look to this like idealized system in Europe, and it's like that's not even obviously no, close no. to optimal either. Yeah, um, but like at least people feel taken care of by the government, and I believe in a very real sense they are much more taken care of. Right, yeah, like totally. like they know that they're not going to face the out of pocket costs. They might face lines. They're like okay ish with that. Like yeah, they, the, the insurance thing is is crazy. Like. Like, yeah, you can just be hit by these huge expenses and... I mean, the idea of, but, like, third-party like, payers in general is is just terrible from all, like, incentive alignment structures you could right. think of. Third-party third payers is the worst. Yeah, you have, this, you have this problem of, of uh, the... Um, I mean, people get, get hit by these huge bills, right? Like, the, the basically, yeah. there's no elasticity on some of this stuff i think the problem is just that like there's nothing against the laws of physics that like keeps people from wanting things that are completely incompatible right and like like some of the some of the way that we view people in the u.s is like the customer's always right right and like what does the customer want the customer wants like a ton of health care like 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 actually there's massive demand for this and the solution in europe is basically like we're not going to let people have it (laughs) <laughs> right like yeah. like like actually or, we will... or like you know one one scheme which of course creates much political problems is like we're not going to let people have it unless they want to go pay for it themselves right because like people are kind of find ways some to of them have like privatized it. systems some of them don't and generally the private systems are small and, and not super super significant yeah in those countries right yeah um yeah so like um the public option thing at least starts to create some competition, right? Like, if you have a public option that is actually better than the private system, like, yeah, the private system will shrink away, and then people will at least be happy that they have the public option. Right. Um, which, like, I think this is part of why the, like, 
Republicans are so scared of having like a private and a and and like you know uh, and and a system of public is because like that might actually crowd out the private side. Well, I mean, good, right? <laughs> like, like, what's, like the, the, the key thing is get that number down of, of what yeah. percent of GDP are we spending on this, right? Right. And this is like the, the intractability of this thing is like why, you know, partially why I bring up like the Plato example. It's just like yeah. right, my approach to healthcare is just like, don't do get not, sick. Don't yeah. do not interact <laughs> with that system. Like, yep. Uh, and I because it's just so crazy and unpredictable. Right? Um, yeah, because there, there totally are people that will, like, overuse the healthcare system, right? Um, and, like, that is actually a pretty real problem. Yeah. Um, it's tricky because, like, you want it to be there when you need it, right? Yeah. And you would like to actually know when you need it and, and when you don't. But then, like, I basically just think some of the issues people aren't willing to tackle is on the consumer side, right? I don't think there's, like, anyone out there right now that's saying, like, no, it's the consumers wanting this stuff that's the problem. Right, right? and that's They're that's sort of implicitly doing it via maybe, rationing in Europe, but there's no one saying that in yeah. the U.S. Of like, well, maybe we should have less total health care. No one says that, yeah. right? Like, like no I mean, one, I'll, I'll say that. But. <laughs> I mean, I just said it. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, I mean, particularly end-of-life care, right? It's one of the most spectacularly expensive parts of, of this whole process, right? Yeah. And, like, what can most, you know, like, look, we are at the point where if you have you know, certain types of leukemia or if you have like melanoma, it's like, it's, it's worth actually trying some of these things now, even if they take six figures, like that, that actually makes sense. Drugs that are coming out that, that, you know, cost six figures and they give you a couple extra months and it's pretty agonizing. I think we, we need to ask a very real question of like, should we be encouraging people to, to take that option? Yeah. Right. And like the problem is very much between like the patient and the doctor where the patient, usually not even the patient, the patient's family comes in and they're like, we want to do everything we can. Yeah. And what is the doctor going to do? Are they going to be like, well, you know, it would kind of bankrupt your family and your insurance company to do this. You know, probably you shouldn't take this drug. No, they're like, well, here's what your options are. Right. And then those people start getting mad at the insurance company because the insurance company wants to put some kind of like professional process in yes. place for, <laughs> for like paying for these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, and this, yeah, it, it does come back to like what what people want or how people are looking at this thing. And like, this is why, you know, I start out by asking the question is like, how much of this is even real? Because yeah um like if if we're just spending enormous amounts of money because we think that healthcare is this really good thing that we actually yeah. do want more of it uh and in reality like it barely works in a lot of cases and like it's just this big money suck we don't want healthcare on the current margin we want healthcare on the like moonshot margin <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Like on the current margin, it's li like, you know, you see these things. Um, it's like one more line of chemo on the margin. Like, like, like what? <laughs> yeah. Like, like you look at, um, I think it was Robin Hanson. It's always bringing yeah. up this example about how like healthcare. We uh, do this because we care. Yeah. Well, well yeah. So there's like why people do it, but like healthcare doesn't actually like more money spent on healthcare does not lead to better health outcomes. Yeah. And that's like, 
that's pretty condemning, all right? That's like, the system does not work. Yep. Like, like we, are spending, we are spending a fifth of our GDP and it doesn't do much. Or Hansen would say the system works as intended. People are using their, like, you know, free consumption, you know, to spend on, like, what amounts to a luxury good. Yeah, I mean, that's a very, uh, that's a very libertarian approach. I mean, from, from the point of view of the state, which I will take here, I, I don't think we should be spending a fifth of our industrial capacity on something that doesn't do anything. Right? Yeah, no, no, totally. Totally. Um, no, like I think that's completely rational. Um, it's just a question of like, given the current system, how do we kind of get there from here, right? Um, yeah, and that's that's this question of like, you know, part of why I brought up like, how do you actually pare down those bureaucracies? Is because that's likely to be kind of a, a political mess. Like one of the problems that the U.S. has generally is that we don't have the ability to discipline bureaucracies very well. Right. And right. they they can kind of they grow out of control and then like how do you actually pare that down you don't have someone in there with enough you don't have someone in the system that, that there's someone with enough authority to just be like all right i know it's going to be hard america <laughs> but we're taking a haircut here we're going to spend one tenth as much as we do on healthcare, and and you're just going to have to figure it out and you know like people don't want to hear that no one crazy. wants to hear that right but like that might be where we end up and, and right. like if you don't do that in a regulated right, right. fashion, you end up doing that because you run out of money or like your That's system exactly crashes, right. right? And I would rather not have the system crash and burn before we try to figure out what like the next system is that is like yeah. a tenth the cost, right? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you do start to see incentives working on the margin. Like folks are doing like medical tourism for like really expensive procedures like they they actually are willing to like do some work in advance be like well i can fly to this country i could get yeah for stuff you can actually plan it makes a lot of sense to have a price system right it's it's really the emergency room (laughs) it's really right it's the emergency room that that uh that has very very difficult incentives and then and the end of life care type stuff yeah for for very different reasons yeah and i I mean it's yeah, yeah. And so in the end of life care, if it's like, yeah, people are just given this narrative of like, healthcare is actually this really good thing that we should consume. It's like, you can imagine this alternate world where we're given a different message that's like, actually. Yeah, I know. Like, like maybe we, we don't, maybe we don't want that. Right. We, we haven't talked at all about the role of science news reporting, but I actually think that it's extraordinarily harmful. <laughs> right. Like, like you know, new, new therapy promises to cure whatever. And it like creates this overhyped vision of, of what the system's actually capable of. That's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. And like, you know, um, yeah, uh, it's funny. There are, there are a few sort of real science news journalists left. But they're pretty rare. And right. most of the journalists covering this stuff are usually covering like a wide range of things. And then there's like an editor who's like, I heard this cool thing happen, like go write a story on it. Right. And these like sort of rank and file journalists come in, they don't know anything about the system, and they're just like asking a scientist. This this like this like might might be the first time they've ever even covered something like this. Right. Right? And, and so they ask the scientist who made this cool discovery, and like for the scientist, this is like free press. Right. So <laughs> I'm gonna like, talk it up as much Yeah, it's like, let me tell you how this is gonna cure cancer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, right. and of course the audience wants to hear that as well, right? Oh yeah, like, there's so much and, hope around it. And, and this is, uh, I mean, like to make a to make a, an aside point here, like this is a general problem in, in sort of almost all of like futurism and, and technology forecasting is like people yeah. hear this constant stream of hype. Yeah, it's like and, super optimistic, and a lot of it's awesome. just not real. 
Right. It's like, well, which which of those things have panned out? Like, how many times have we heard uh, cancer's cured, right? Right. Like, usually, like, it was in a mouse model in, in one person's lab. Right. And we're like, cancer's cured, right? And, and it's just hilarious how, like, the journalists will just sort of uncritically accept that because we saw it in an animal model that it works on humans. And, and they'll write the story, like, with, like, the headline and even in the body, like... You know, we found out that like X Y Z happens in in men, right? It's like no, that was like a subset analysis of like only the male mice because we didn't see the effect in the full cohort. It's right? yeah. so just like crazy yeah. things like that. I'm like that was so we statistically have, illiterate, right? So, right. So and a lot of this is just coming like we've we've harped before in, in Palladium on on like how bad incentives in the journalistic system just like yep. make it completely useless. Um, totally true in science too. Yeah, exactly, and. Like, this is where, like, you start thinking, okay, well, this is an obvious role for the state. The state needs to make, have an opinion about what people should be thinking about healthcare. And it needs to be able to act on that opinion. Um, You know, we can talk about how that's going to be regulated and and so on. But, like, you definitely, if you don't have that role in society of, like, someone responsible for the health of society overall and having an opinion about how the things are going to work and then going and modifying these incentive systems so that they actually do work, then you just get these incredible yep. wastes. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really yeah. unfortunate. So I have given this a lot of thought and, 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 and I think I've found a way to cut the Gordian knot though. It would oh, cool. step on enough toes that I'm not totally sure we can make it happen. But, um, I think the answer is to have a public option. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., but I think it has to be very minimal and not run by experts and done mostly by checklist, right? Great. So, I mean, I would be a customer. It's like my well, well right. Like so. my current thing. My current thing is quite literally like I'm not even going to bother with insurance. Like it, it's yeah, it's that bad. Like the, like we. You can also find folks now that only accept patients out of pocket, which is like the other sort of failure right. mode. Is that a like alternative market based system actually emerges despite the existence of everything else? There's right. also a tiny market based system right. where you can go in and the prices are posted on the wall. Yeah. Like you can right. find clinics. I like know how this. to like. I, it's like all right, you got a price. I know how to deal with it. Tell me it's like, five hundred bucks. I can decide if it's worth it or not. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, that system does exist, and that could grow. Right. That could actually grow yeah, yeah. to become no, like I, yeah, more more. I'm very very, very um, excited about any kind of like, yeah, out of pocket and uh, sort of hyper minimal uh, like public care. Yeah, because you do want you want people to have access to this stuff. Like, it's not yeah. like okay, someone breaks their arm and like they actually just can't afford to do anything about it. Like that's that's really bad. You can't yeah, have totally. a society like that, right? Um, what you need, like, like you need to provide some of these like basic welfare points, right? Yeah, but you don't want to be like writing a blank check to that's bunch of exactly people who are just right. going to like consume so. it all over the place. And that's where you need to bust these narratives of like, actually maybe this person doesn't need to consume healthcare right. that much. Maybe they don't need to go to the ER room every, every month. Right? <laughs> like that's right. So, um, so yeah, the sort of comprehensive plan I'm thinking of the whole thing has to be run by the government and it, and it has to circumvent the guilds and the like supply side problems. Right. Yeah. So like these things can't be hospitals, but they're like government run clinics. They're, they're, they're not doctors. They're like government health workers. Right. Right. So like right off the bat, C- circumvent the entire thing. Yeah. Yep. Um, 
but they're only providing like a very limited range of services and they're all the things that are like urgent care that are like super super necessary and also the things that can be done extremely cheaply that have large effect sizes right and because these people are basic surgery basic bone setting basic like antibiotics like the, the basics yeah right and even like you show up and you know they check and you're overweight and borderline diabetic and you just get prescribed metformin and it's a couple cents per pill Right? right? It's like that will have a big effect size on the whole system. And right. you don't have to be a doctor to see that this person walks in and is overweight. And it's like crazy because you hear these like horror stories from these like, you know, poor uh, primary care physicians. Like almost every person that like walks in, in to see them, they're coming in for some reason, but they also have the like five chronic problems that are sort of obviously going to be a problem in like 10 years from now. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, okay, you should exercise, you should lose weight. They, they say the exact same thing to each patient and they just sort of turn through this like, clinic and and all of them then have to file tons and tons and tons of paperwork because they saw this one patient when really all that person needed to hear is like i'm going to write you a script for like metformin and you should just leave right and like i think the trick is like this all has to be framed such that it's like maximally caring right it's like we the government have provided you this service and we've guaranteed that we're only going to give you stuff that we promise will work and all the other stuff that that other healthcare system offers, it's up to you if you want to try it. But a lot of it is fake. <laughs> but we're not offering it to you because we know that it doesn't meet this threshold. Right. Right. <laughs> right. right. No, this is and great. That's like, the message, right? The, like, very much lights a fire under the ass of the rest of the system, which is yep. exactly what you want. No, that's, no, I like it. I like this proposal. Um, I would be a customer, or at least I would be a customer if I needed to. I would avoid, of course, getting sick. <laughs> That's just it. We would all avoid this like the plague. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go to the government clinic again. Oh, God. <laughs> but, like, I do think you could make it fast and efficient and cheap enough that, like, it, it, it actually could be more, more of a sort of, like, you know... Uh, consumer facing thing where like you show up and like yeah you do get like 15 or 20 minutes with someone whose primary job is to like care for you and then to just run through the checklist yeah and this is actually um this also takes a lot of the pressure off the other system in terms of like people no longer need the other system as much yeah and so there's much like it could make much more room for price system yeah could make much more room for like people just opting out Totally. It's like, all right, I don't need insurance anymore, right? Because, like, that's I know the basics e- that's are exactly right. government health claims. That's exactly right. The idea then, would be to try to displace as much of it as we possibly could at the lowest possible cost. Yeah, and then and then it's like, all right, there are going to be things that we still need that system for, mm-hmm. and it will reorganize to more efficiently provide those things. Yeah, totally. And, like, I, yeah, right. Like, I'm, I'm totally fine if folks want to spend, you know, six or even seven figures on a like experimental treatment. Like I'm, I'm, I'm actually for that. Great. Because That's, I right, want innovation then, right, in the yeah, system. Yeah, no, there has to be innovation. Right? And, yeah. But like, I want the message to be clear. Like this is a crazy experimental therapy, right? And like everyone else is not going to pay for it for you. Yeah. And this is, you have to pay for it this or find a way to pay for it. This isn't the shelling point basic <laughs> thing. Like this comes yeah, back like, to Robin Hanson's point. I, I expect, you know, you know, one to $10 million worth of treatment before I die or something. It's yeah. Like, well, holy crap. Like this is, this comes back to Robin Hanson's point of like why people actually consume healthcare. Well, it's not because you yeah. know, it works and they know that and they need something that works. It's because there's this socially sort of agreed upon level of care that we need yep. to give ourselves and other people. And, and sort of like politically, there's this baseline of like, there's this assumption everyone should have access to like as much healthcare as they need. Yep. Right. And, and to, 
sort of by fiat set a much lower shelling point on that. Like that could just like the the social effect actually could yeah. be quite high, especially if it was accompanied by some propaganda, right? <laughs> yeah. Which I, I think the state should do more of. But um but they yeah, like it it could be like, all right, there's your basic health care, right? Which yeah. the government has under control and everything else is optional and kind of a luxury. Yeah. And you know, maybe it's real, maybe it isn't, right? And then like people aren't ex like it can remove some of the pressure. It's like, all right, you're expected to really provide this extra level. That's exactly There's right, no yeah. like obvious stopping point right now where exactly where you're sort of saying like, all right, I wash my hands of this. Like I have done my duty. Yeah. I mean, ultimately like the U S government provides about half of all like healthcare spending and like they are not allowed to do things like argue drug prices necessarily, but like there, there are ultimately decisions about sort of like what is covered or not. And like they, they do come down to cost benefit analyses and like we're starting to see that like i mean that that is basically how the system works in europe it's like you you have a fixed budget and then you have to set the like line of like dollars per quality that you want and like everything like under that gets funded everything over that doesn't and that means like a lot of the new drugs that get approved in the u.s are like approved in europe but not paid for right right um the one thing that we didn't talk about that is really really um a hot topic today is called value-based pricing and the idea is like so you're gonna get uh car t therapy that costs five hundred thousand dollars right you're going to get one of the, you know, new gene therapies that costs like a couple million dollars. Wow. Um, but if it's a gene therapy that saves the life of an infant who is otherwise completely normal and healthy for the rest of their life, yeah. like that's actually something people are willing to pay for. Right. I mean, yeah. if like a child gets like trapped in an like underground cave, we spend tens of millions of dollars to save a kid. Yeah. Right. And so like you, you could see it on, on like that sort of level. There's, there's clearly societal willingness to pay when it's like, we know what we're getting actually is like a totally normal, like healthy kid's life. Yeah. Whereas it gets stickier when it's like, all right, you're going to pay 500 K to save someone who's like 75. Yeah. You get another few months. You get another few months or a year. Yeah. Yeah. And so like the actual willingness to pay in those cases should be different. And there should be a lot higher willingness to pay for folks that like, you know, A is curative and B like actually affects people that aren't about to die from something else. Right. Um, and so the idea behind value-based pricing is we'll give you the therapy sort of like contingent on it working and you only pay sort of up to the point that it actually works. Right. And so, um, the first, uh, gene therapy approved here in the U S was like for blindness. Yeah. And what they're basically saying is we'll give you that gene therapy. And if you can see, you'll pay us. If you can't see, you don't pay us. Right. And uh, CAR-T therapy is basically going to probably move to a similar model, which is, well, so first, I mean, just just from a cost-benefit perspective, it was technically only approved for people under, I think, like, 25. Right. Um, and, you know, they're, they're working to, like, expand the label, right, which is what all these folks do. Um, but, like, it is actually approved in children because, like, the honest answer is it's, like, 500K for the, like, actual treatment. It's another 500k in the hospital costs, like monitor that person while they're getting it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so really the actual price tag is like a million dollars, right? But it will cure, you know, childhood leukemias. Right. That's yeah, like... which is potentially worth it. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, we've uh, gone over two hours now. I think it's 
good, I think good probably, time yeah. to cut it, especially with having heard your excellent proposal to just <laughs> root around the whole thing and solve it all. Excellent. Um, That's yeah, a perfect place to stop. We'll, we'll just uh, wait till we get the political muscle to do that. <laughs> we'll see if anyone if anyone actually can yep. pull that off. I'm not optimistic in the short term. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, Will, for coming yes, on. Yes, totally. Um, yeah, I mean. A little bit outside of our usual wheelhouse, but we got into some of the good stuff and, and yeah, covered totally. a lot of great topics. And I think it's uh, it's been very informative for me. A lot of fun. Yeah, totally. And so, uh, we can always go deeper on more kind of institutional stuff too, because yeah, you know, we that's can do a another time. Complex, wonderful uh, little right. mess of its own. <laughs> right. All right. Well, let's leave it at that. Uh, this has been episode eight of the Palladium Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time.